Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Pour some more coffee here. All right. I wanted to start off with a little quote and see what we think of it, because uh, it's interesting. I was reading it while your uh, computer was crashing. Um, was Plotinus one of a group organized on the globular Sephiroth when he was thrice united with God while still in his body? It is by sorrow and labor, by love of all living things, and by a heart that humbles itself before the ancestral light, and by a mind whose power and beauty and quiet flow through without end, that men come to adeptship, and not by the multiplication of petty formulae. Nice. What do you think of that? I like that. That is by W.B. Yeats from, I believe, some of his... I'm not sure if that's part of his published or unpublished notes, but I've been reading The Unicorn, which is a pretty far-out book because the author basically had a field day when Rigardi's rituals got published and said, hey, I can now take those rituals and assume that Yeats went through them and write about that and of course, the irony, of course, is that those probably aren't exactly how it was for him. But she went and wrote this massive book, which academics love to talk about because it's just a very far out spiritual interpretation of WB8. And of course, I love talking about WB8. So um, right. I thought we'd start with a little word from uh, someone close to both our hearts, hopefully. And welcome, Lenny, to Magic Without Fears, Hermetic thank you, Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you, you are. Uh, you're in sunny Edinburgh. <laughs> close, Scotland. close. I, I'm in sunny Livingston in Scotland. Okay. Yeah. Not Edinburgh. It's not far from, it's not far from Edinburgh. Edinburgh suburb, suburb sort of. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I, Edinburgh is still like remains one of my favorite cities of all times. Like Prague, Edinburgh. The castle was uncleaned when I was there. It was before it was cleaned, you know, so it had a very dark yeah. Gothic look in 97. The main mm. Edinburgh just like dark. And I was like, whoa. And so we hung out there a lot and climbed the hill where the thistles are. I had a thistle in my notebook from there for like 25 years later until the notebook got lost and slid oh, down the hill, slid down that hill and went through uh, the stinging nettles, which, you know, I'd never encountered <laughs> in my life before. So I was like, ow, what's that? And my Scottish friend was like, oh, you're fucked. <laughs> right we have stinging nettles all over the place in europe i mean it's all over the place in the uk it's all over the place back in denmark you know and and it's a fantastic medicinal herb but it's it's a it's an obnoxious weed in europe and, and people rip them up all over the place because they just want to get rid of them right yeah but it's a fantastic medicinal herb i've had nettle tea and i think you can mm. make soup out of it even you can yeah you can actually crazy scots <laughs> but you're not well, Scottish. Crazy, Dane, crazy Danes, too. Yeah. We we used to make nettle soup back in the day, too. That was before my time, but it's something I heard a lot. Uh, I heard a lot about it from my grandparents, about nettle soup. 
I don't recall if I've ever had it, though. I might have had it once when I was a kid, just, just for fun. And my grandma might have made it for me at one point. I seem to have some kind of vague recollection of that. But I do remember that uh, my grandparents spoke about it. So it was definitely before my time. It wasn't popular when I was a kid. I'm not that old. <laughs> no, no. Um, thankfully, thankfully, you're not that old yet. That's a, a Masonic ring you're wearing. And I think we yes. are going to talk a lot about Freemasonry today. And uh, I guess uh, I'd love, I think one of the first things a lot of people are curious about is, that has fascinated me from, from our many conversations is, is the, real, the role that Edinburgh and Scotland play in Freemasonry that is sometimes, it's well known and even celebrated. I mean, that's why we have like the Scottish Rite. Um, but I think it's not quite known how pivotal Scotland has been to the development of Freemasonry. For example, how early the first Masonic halls and temples and groups have been around um, I was a believer in the the sort of the bourgeoisie above the pub in the 18th century uh, story, which is quite popular. Um, but right. you know more about this. So maybe you could start off by describing what you've uh, hinted at to me in the past about the, the illustrious background of Edinburgh and Lodge Zero, if that's what you call it, and all of that sort of stuff. So people right. know know the depths that we're going to plumb all right. Well, uh, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, as I've mentioned um, to you before, when you and I have just been talking about it privately, and also what you touched upon right now, that, that classical tale about Freemasonry started in England uh, in the 18th century, in the early 18th century, right, with these four lodges that came together at the Goose and Gridiron Tavern and, you know, at that pub and then decided to create uh, the first Grand Lodge. Now, it's true if you say, well, the first Grand Lodge, the first Grand Lodge of Freemasonry was established that way in London. But that's hardly the beginning of Freemasonry. And that's the story that's usually spun. That was how Freemasonry began. But that's not the case. Uh, actually, Freemasonry has its origins. I mean, if we just just for a second, uh, ignore the origins, origins, you know, looking at medieval stonemasonry and so on. We can get into that a bit later. But uh, what we trace back, and that's not just us as uh, Scottish Freemasons, that's academics as well who are not Freemasons, but historians who just find uh, Masonic history uh, particularly interesting and fascinating. And uh, it has been... Um, it has been agreed upon by these academics that the beginnings of what has now come to be known as Freemasonry, those beginnings are found in Scotland. And they date back to what we call the Shaw Statutes that were originally written by uh, William Shaw, the King's Master of Works, back in 1598 and 1599. They were originally written in 1598, and then there was a revised edition in 1599. That's a longer, more complicated story that I'm sure would just bore people to tears. Uh, but, <laughs> sorry? And what are the statutes? The Shaw statutes are basically, um, well, to, to put it briefly and kind of roughly, crudely, but they're, they're basically a collection of rules that were uh, implemented by William Shaw to sort of um, organize and systematize the lodge system in stonemasonry. And so there are different rules such as like uh, 
um, uh, how things need to be governed and regulated. They're mostly operative in nature. So uh, there's not much in terms of speculative masonry and that. It's operative masonry. So it's about... Uh, uh, about how uh, master masons are allowed to work and and how f um, uh, entered apprentices or apprentices as it was called and uh, were uh, permitted to work and things you can do and you cannot do and if you do that you have to pay a fine and then those fines are then used uh, for uh, charities uh, different fines that are paid for people uh, uh, you know uh, having to, to suffer some kind of penalty for having broken the rules or whatever, then uh, whatever is paid for those fines will then be given to charities. But yeah, so it's it's a bunch of do's and don'ts and how things need to be organized and systematized, et cetera, et cetera. That's basically what the Shaw statutes are. So this is the, the first time that uh, masonry has become that, uh, or the lodge system in stonemasonry has become that organized, that structured thing that would lead to how things run today. And that's why we trace it back to those Shaw statutes. And uh, it was ever since those Shaw statutes were implemented, and this is one of the most important things, that lodges began to have minute books and they began to have to write down everything whenever they had meetings and so on. And that's why the oldest lodge minute book entries in the world are Scottish. They are from a lodge known as Lodge Aitchison's Haven uh, back in early 1599. Unfortunately, that lodge doesn't exist anymore, uh, but the second oldest lodge a few months later in 1599 is the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel number one. So that is the oldest Masonic lodge in the world, still extant Masonic lodge in the world because it's still there in Edinburgh. It's still it's still ticking, and it's been around since 1599. And there's wow. no other Masonic lodge in the world that predates that one, uh, at least that can provide proof for it. Then there's the whole thing with, uh, as you mentioned, the uh, number zero or number nothing, as we say. It's a lodge mother winning number nothing. Number uh, not. Well, right. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's what we call Lodge Mother winning number nothing over here. And yeah. uh, that was uh, a, a number that was given to the Lodge because the Lodge has some very, very solid claims to being the oldest Lodge in Scotland and thereby also the oldest still extant Lodge in the world. But unfortunately, there is no documentation to prove it. And, you know, you, you have to go with what you can document by having a scrap of paper that has a date and says such and such on it. And the oldest lodge in that case is the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel. And that's why that one was given number one. But then the Lodge, uh, lodge Mother Kilwinning was then eventually given that number to, to, to honor its claims to being the oldest lodge in the world, in spite of it not having documentation to prove it. Right? But it has a lot of other uh, things that, that supports the claim. And that's why it was given that number. So that's the whole thing uh, about... Uh, Kilwinning, and that's why there are various lodges in Scotland that are named Kilwinning. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there are actually lodges and in Canada as well that are named Kilwinning something in honor of that lodge. Wow. Wow. So, so yeah, it's remarkable. Um, I think people will be fascinated to hear confirm that, uh, that masonry in some ways does come out of actual stone masonry, that it is older than uh, some of... Uh, 
the more recent historians have assumed, um, certainly mm-hmm. more recent than some of the books I've read through a bit. Right. What, when do we know exactly how, when the very As I said, medieval Freemasonry is what uh, modern-day Freemasonry came out of. Like, did it just literally grow out of that guild? That's what it grew out of, right? I mean, it it started off with the craft guilds, right? And then eventually, because the craft guilds um, were not... They were not uh, adequate, uh, so to speak. Uh, I'm not really putting that in the best of, of terms, uh, but but for lack of a better way of putting it, they were not really adequate or they weren't sufficiently capable of dealing with the unique situation of uh, the craft of stonemasonry. And that's the reason why the, the, the lodge system started to become implemented. I mean, lodges in, in stonemasonry were originally just uh, uh, smaller structures that people could work under, you know, shading from the sun, that kind of stuff. And then eventually it grew to a bit more where people would uh, eat, you know, under some kind of roof, you know, they would eat there, they would sleep there, rest there, and then get back to work. They would store their tools there. And eventually it grew into something more. And eventually in time, the lodge became more than just a structure. And it became a term used for the actual collective of uh, the rules and regulations and uh, the thing that made up that body of masons. That was where that that term lodge started to be used in that fashion and no longer just indicated a physical structure. Um, but uh, stonemasonry itself, I mean, well, I mean, if you look back to ancient Egypt, when the pyramids were built, um, whoever was involved in that, well, they would be classified as stonemasons, right? So again, that's why we have the stories about stonemasonry dates back to ancient Egypt and this and that. But of course, modern day Freemasonry does not make that claim. In, in the sense of traditional history, there, there are, of course, connections there. But in terms of factual history, we say no, because we there are too many differences culturally and, and this and that, you know. So what we can trace our roots to directly is that medieval stonemasonry. And yeah. the reason why um, we, we are so proud of the history that we have of Freemasonry here in Scotland is because Uh, It is a really rich and fascinating history. And because we have the strongest link in existence between operative masonry and speculative masonry. Uh, Whereas if you look, and this is not to say anything ill of our English brethren or anything, uh, not at all, but it it appears that the way Freemasonry um, was kind of implemented in England seems to have been very much a speculative thing from the very get-go, regardless of the origins of Freemasonry still being operative stonemasonry, right? Yeah. Uh, But that in England, it was very much a speculative thing from the very get-go, and that made it easier to, you know, just get started like that, if you will. Whereas in Scotland, there is that really, really strong tie to operative masonry, because uh, lodges like uh, the Lodge of Edinburgh, Mary's Chapel, number one that I mentioned, that used to be an operative uh, Masonic Lodge. That, I mean, speculative Freemasonry was a development that happened uh, because of uh, the symbolism and the interpretation, the philosophical, if you will, interpretation of uh, the the tools and and, uh, the operative mechanics, et cetera, et cetera, of Masonry. 
of stonemasonry. That was what uh, led to speculative masonry. But we can't really say, we can't pinpoint specifically when speculative masonry began, because first of all, we don't have any evidence to say it began right here on this Tuesday, right there. We don't have anything to say that. And because it was this developmental process, I mean, we we have records of some of the earliest uh, so-called speculative masons being initiated into a lodge. Like, so meaning people who were not stonemasons by profession, but they were still initiated into a Masonic lodge. So that was clearly because they had an interest in this speculative element. So we know that speculative element has been there for a long time. But even though we have records that state like back in 1634, also in Scotland, I will have you know, <laughs> that's actually also the oldest. Uh, you really have gone native. <laughs> You've gone native, eh, bro? You've gone fully native. Well, yeah. you know, I, I love it here. How, how can you do anything? Scotland's, am- amazing. 100%. Scotland's amazing. <laughs> when I had to decide between um, activating my UK ancestry status or going with Irish citizenship, I had to make a decision because they weren't going to let me have three passports. <clears throat> Uh, I know for people who do have three passports, there are workarounds to that, but, but who wants, who wants the hassle? I mean, if you really love filling out forms and dealing with the government bureaucracy, right. I mean, <laughs> go for it. But like, eh. so I decided uh, I went with uh, the UK um, largely because of, of Scotland. I was like, you know, I could be uh, sort of stuck just in the Republic of Ireland, or I could be, have access to Scotland, Northern Ireland, and mm-hmm. the whole UK. Um, so all, the decision was obvious for me because Scotland's right, right. just like, you know. Plus, if you're in Northern Ireland, you can. it's pretty easy to go to the south mm-hmm. until, unless they put up another wall, which we all know how that will turn out. <laughs> you see that Irish guy on the news? If you put up a wall, people will shoot at it. If you put up a wall, they'll blow it up. It's just a fact. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's so true. Don't put up any walls in a, in Ireland, bros. Please don't do it. Asking for trouble. Um, maybe then, so, uh, yeah, I've got, uh, uh, there's a lot of Freemasons and um, amongst my uh, friends and students and podcast mm-hmm. uh, listeners. And so I have some very cool questions for you. So how about I uh, um, get to go straight into into one of them? Oh, where is it? Where's the first one? Oh, yeah, please, by yeah. all means. Yeah, um, because because if, if you just ask me to talk about something, as you've probably gathered from what I tried to explain just now, I, I went, you know, far and wide and covered all kinds of stuff. I think it's, there, I think it's so called... There's so much to tell. It's, it's called knowing, just knowing your stuff, right? You know your stuff. <laughs> or difficulty in staying we're, on point. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get to other things. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, the discovery of witchcraft, which is a book your right. company is putting <clears throat> out and all your other right. publishing works. We actually have a, a listener question about occult publishing for you. Um, but here you go, for right. Lenny. Um, and I'm just going to read it as they wrote it. Uh, if they didn't write mm-hmm. it to be read that way, well, they'll, they'll <clears throat> live and learn. For Lenny, with, uh, with namaste hands, of course. We can't overdo namaste hands for people. We can't. <laughs> Honestly, just glue your hands together and walk around like that all day. Um, <laughs> I wonder how that would play out. <laughs> all right. Context. He writes context. This is from Frater QH for Lenny. Context. In masonry, we learn that three pillars of masonry are wisdom, strength, and beauty. In hindsight, the echoes of QBL, Kabbalah, are there, but never explicitly called out as such. Later, as part of a lecture, we hear of Ionic, Dorian, and Corinthian columns. That throws me back to uh, 
uh, art history classes. Without betraying any oaths, could you possibly go into some of the symbolism involved here and what sources a brother might reach for to research any other more subtle overlaps? That's the first question. Right. And that was very serious. And this is from a brother Mason <laughs> right. in Canada. Oh, well, see, now that's the thing. This is the hard part for me because um, the whole element of secrecy in Freemasonry is, uh, this is just something I, I need to mention so you get where I'm coming from with this, is uh, it's not what people think. And that's why people constantly label Freemasonry as a secret society. I know even, even officially, like if you look up secret societies in an encyclopedia, oh, there will be something on Freemasonry there, absolutely. But we don't call ourselves a secret society. We say we're rather a society with secrets. And yeah, yeah some people will quickly say well, that's just semantics. But no, it, it's not to us. Because to us, a genuine secret society, of which there are several out there, right? Um, you, you know it exists. Yeah. And uh, at best, you may know its name. But that's as far as it goes. You don't know the names of the members. You don't know where they meet. You don't know what they do, what they learn. You basically know nothing. That's a genuine secret society. So if yeah. we were to fall into that category, we do a pretty terrible job at it. I mean, it, as you pointed out, you know, we wear rings. A lot of us here in Scotland, we're like prolific ring wearers here. Most Freemasons here wear rings. Over here, we it's painted all over cancer cars that drive cancer patients around. It's it's yeah, it's well known. Like my lodge is is got a had until they just rezoned it and forced them out. Thanks, right. I had a huge skyscraper in the middle of the downtown. That was my right. lodge, my Trinity Lodge. Right, we're we're pretty easy to find, right? And all the lodges yeah. will have big fat letters saying lodge such and such number, this and that, and have yeah. sonic symbols in the windows and on the door and whatnot. That's we're, we're not very good at hiding, and we have websites and all kinds of dude, stuff. Dude, if we if we were hidden, we we <laughs> like we just had three of our lodges burnt to the ground in in Vancouver oh. by a mason. He went around to all three and burnt three to the ground, including the one in North Van where I'm from that had all the archives of Frater Achad. No, no. Yeah, and people were standing outside as they were burning, like yelling, free the children. Yeah. Horrific, eh? Yeah, so so yeah. definitely not a secret. Uh, and no. people don't realize that actually you don't need to have ancestry to join or have some no. grand pooba invite you. You can just apply to join, go to the dinners, meet them. A lot of the people right. there are very nice uh yeah. Right, yeah. right. And that's that's been one of the biggest issues that Freemasonry has experienced as well, is that uh, we've actually had people in the past uh, whose fathers or grandfathers or uncles were Freemasons, and and the, the boys in question, sons, grandsons, whatever, uh, became, you know, intrigued by it and, and kept wondering, I, I wonder when when dad is going to invite me to come along or when my uncle is going to invite me to come along, and it just never happened. Uh, and then people lose out on it, uh, thinking they need to be invited. Because it is true when you hear that thing about you need to be invited. Uh, you can't just show up and, and sign a form and pay your dues and off you go, right? Uh, you do need an invitation. But that invitation, it doesn't mean that that has to be given unrequested. You actually have to take the first step. And that's the thing, because we are not allowed to... Uh, 
push anyone else to become a Freemason? That's a big question that you will be given when you uh, go in for your inquiry meeting is that you are coming of your own free will. And that's the reason why we're very adamant about it's okay. We can talk a whole bunch about masonry. Most of us, we love talking about Freemasonry, right? We love it. And and we're only happy to answer questions. Um, But we can't suggest and say, you know, I think you should join. I think you should apply. We can't really do that because that would be considered us sort of pressuring someone else. Even if it's, you know, it's with good intentions and you're not pushing anyone, you're saying, oh, but it's still your decision. But we're still very adamant about, you know, shouldn't do that. Answer people's questions and then let them make the decision themselves. But they have to take that very first step and actually contact a lodge and show an interest. And that's when you will then receive an invitation if you turn out to be someone that the lodge believes you would be an ideal candidate for the order and the order would be good for you as well. And then you will receive the invitation to come in on this and that night to this and that lodge for your initiation. So that's what that invitation means. Uh, It's not in the same sense as certain other orders, some are also uh, Masonically related, are by invitation only, but that's in a very literal sense that you can't apply. You need to know someone who's already inside and who thinks, "Mm, I think brother such and such would be good for this or that order. And so he will recommend you to that order and then they will, suddenly you will just get a a letter and you're like, who the hell is this from? And then you will get your invitation, right? But that's not how Freemasonry works. You have to make the first step. And that's why you get that famous bumper sticker thing uh, to be one, ask one. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, where that sense. comes from because you you just ask someone, yeah. uh, and then you you start your your journey from there. But uh, I digress. Uh, it was the whole thing about the the pillars and so on. Um, that's the thing about secrecy. There's a lot of stuff we can talk about in Freemasonry. It's actually most of it we can talk about, and very few things we can't. Uh, there are some very specific secrets in Freemasonry, and those are the things that we swear to never reveal. Right. Um, but outside of that, um, a lot of the other stuff is, is not secret. When it comes to the rituals, to the degree rituals, it's a little all over the place with how people feel. Some people feel as long as you keep the actual secrets with capital letters secret, well, you can talk about the other stuff and other people, myself included, are a bit more Mm, I don't like talking about the details of the rituals, both for one, you don't want to ruin the surprise, as it were, for any potential Freemason, because the less you know, the more awe-inspiring it is when you're there and you're like, wow, because you have no idea what you're getting yourself into, basically, right, ritually speaking. Uh, And if you know what to expect, you're not really paying attention and you're like, oh, yeah, I read about that, I heard about that, Uh, and it doesn't have the same impact, right? Uh, so that's one. But the other thing is also um, we tend to feel, many of us at least, I, obviously I can't speak for everyone, but many of us tend to feel that there are certain things about Freemasonry, about the, the symbolism and the teachings and especially the rituals that should be for Freemasons only because it, it's a private thing. It's a private order. And so we tend to think, well, what do you need to know it for? If you're not a Freemason and you don't intend to become one, why do you need to know? Because some people will quickly say, well, I'm not planning on becoming a Freemason, so you can tell me. Or some will say, but I'm a girl. I can't become a Freemason, so you can tell me. And then, well, why do you need to know them? Then it it has nothing to do with you. Uh, And so because of that, I know that sounds kind of snobby, but it's not so much 
being snobby as just being protective of what we feel. This is our private little thing. And, and we, it's something very important to us and we don't want to belittle that. And so because of that, some of us are a little adamant about, you know, we don't want to talk about ritual details. And the thing with the pillars, I would kind of prefer to not, <laughs> because then we would go into to, uh, a lot of analysis with the, the symbolism of the pillars and, and what, what they point to uh, morally and ethically speaking uh, in terms of the principles and philosophies of Freemasonry. Um, but, uh, well, what I could do, uh, there, there's a little bit of additional information, if I remember correctly, in, um, oh, I always forget the title of that book because it's pretty long. It, it's a book on the tracing boards. Um, uh, uh, Maybe I uh, will... I will give you the link and you can put the link uh, in where if you put this video, this podcast video up on YouTube, you can put the link down there or something. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an Amazon link or something to that book. But there, there's, there are some extra details. If I remember correctly, there's some extra details in there about the, uh, the pillars and the significance of them and so on. But I, I would prefer to yeah. kind of... You know, maybe around it if you don't maybe maybe one day in the future we can even do a, an unrecorded special little chat with you and and any Masonic listeners of the podcast who are who are you know under in their you know who are Masons and talk about that stuff. That could be a fun thing to do with just Masons. And uh, it's worth noting also for female listeners, you can be a woman and join Masonry. I thought that was a most uh, purely modern thing, but I got an earful from Geraldine at Atlantis Books a couple years ago about the history of women masons in masonry. And so I, I no longer say what I used to say that it's just, uh, you know, I, I got schooled and I was fascinated at, at you know, talk, <laughs> message Geraldine or do some research if you are a, a woman who wants to become a mason. I'm sure that there's lots of pathways. Well, that's the thing, though. Um, that depends on where you look. <laughs> sure. All <laughs> because, right. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just because I mean, here in Scotland, it it's still uh, there's no such thing as female Freemasonry in Scotland. There's no such thing because no, because it's one of the oldest um, rules, if you will, in Masonry is that women cannot be made Masons, um, and because of that, uh, with all due respect to other. Uh, orders and uh, other uh, organizations of different kinds, that, uh, such as uh, uh, women's Freemasonry and co-Masonry and so on, um, they are what we uh, refer to as, I, I know people are not going to like when I use that word, because it's usually given like a negative connotation. That's not the case, though. It's <laughs> But <laughs> when we call it irregular Freemasonry, right? Well, what we call irregular Freemasonry is basically what the old, the three oldest Masonic constitutions, uh, the Scottish, the English, and the Irish. Those three original Masonic, uh, those three original Masonic constitutions, um, what they recognize as official, like, true and proper Freemasonry, what we call good and wholesome Freemasonry, is what is then called regular Freemasonry. And anything that doesn't abide by the old rules and the old laws will be considered by these three Masonic constitutions as irregular Freemasonry. And then any other uh, constitution that has derived from either the, the Scottish, the English, or the Irish. Like, for example, the U.S. has its own Masonic constitutions. Each state has its own Grand Lodge. 
but they all originally also came from from the British Isles, of course. Um, that leads because, really, sorry, that leads really well to the next question. Maybe, right, maybe, okay. this, maybe let's the, let the question guide us. Um, right, Euro, have at it. European masonry juxtaposed with American masonry. Are there any major differences in approach worth discussing? Particularly, I'm interested in how the European lodges approach mentorship after the Blue Lodge degrees and whether, for example, there is anything that should be considered before applying for tuition in the SR or HRA, SR first, et cetera. I don't really know what that means because I just did one degree. Right. <laughs> well, um, it kind of depends on what you're looking at if, if you talk about uh, European Freemasonry because that's sort of a gray area because are you talking regular Freemasonry or are you talking these other things that sprung out in Europe, such as the Memphis Misfighting, which is considered irregular Freemasonry. It's a very popular thing in Europe. It's a very esoterically oriented uh, form of Freemasonry, but it's considered irregular because they don't abide by these old laws and the old constitutions and and they do things too differently for the old masonic constitutions to be able to accept them basically and i'm quite curious about memphis misery because of my love of rudolf steiner of course right right and what's there what can what what can people be what can people know about steiner memphis misery and and that whole stuff what's the fast most interesting stuff for people who don't even know what we're talking about to know about that if you were telling it to a completely noob. Well, uh, that's, I'm probably not the best person to no. ask because of my being uh, involved in regular Freemasonry. And so <laughs> most of my knowledge of Memphis Misraim is like secondhand stuff and just having read a little bit about it. Uh, and so kind of knowing what it's about, but it's never anything I have gotten involved in. Um and so, yeah, there would be other people who would be much better suited to answer that question. Ideally, someone who's actually in the Memphis Museum, or at least has been or has friends who are. I actually think I do have a couple of friends who yeah. are in Memphis Museum, but as far as, uh, yeah, no, we've just never really talked about it. And I yeah. think it's because I, they know that I'm a regular Freemason. And if they're in Memphis Misraim, they're like, well, you know, they're, they're different then. And so that's why we've never really discussed Freemasonry mm. in general. So, yeah. but yeah, I actually think I know about, I think I know two people who are in the Memphis Misraim. If you, if you can ever think of someone who'd want to talk about it on the podcast, I'd love to, to learn more about it myself. And especially Absolutely. if they understand uh, its role in Steiner's life and, 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 right. and tradition, that's interesting. I think the question here is, is is mainly expressing um yeah curiosity about about uh the major differences in just approach of of north america versus europe in general um because people in north america don't often know europe as well as you or i do right they, um, i mean hence the question framing it all as one thing right that shows you right there it's like people over here right, often right. think of it as just europe <laughs> i mean because right. let's face it most of europe can fit in just one little province of canada Right. But, but even, even that is, is, I mean, even within Europe, it has its own differences too. I mean, that's the yeah. thing uh, people need to know about Freemasonry as well as Freemasonry is Freemasonry. It is one big international order. It's the same order. I, it's governed by different Masonic constitutions, you know, uh, the different 
Masonic constitutions, the different grand lodges, they don't answer to each other. So like uh, the Scottish Masonic constitution and the Grand Lodge of Scotland does not answer to say the UGLE, the United Grand Lodge of England, and they don't answer to us. And we don't answer to the Irish Grand Lodge and so on. We don't answer to each other. As long as we're all recognized as practicing regular Freemasonry, we govern our own constitutions and we, you do you, I do me basically like that. So we don't answer to each other. We work together and because we are an international order, which is also why you can visit any lodge in the world and you will always be open. You will always be welcomed with open arms. Well, I was told when I joined Trinity Lodge here in Vancouver back in 2005. Um, No, 2004, 2004, right after I closed Temple to Hootie and got divorced. Um, You know, when you, when you lose a wife, become a Mason. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, no, but so, so the, they did say that, uh, technically I'd be welcomed over in, in England and in Europe, but they said I might actually have some trouble getting into the lodges, uh, especially without a letter of introduction, unless someone actually knew me personally. So well, it's not total open arms. When, when you, when you go through the right channels, then yes, then yeah. it's, it's, that is total open arms if you go through the right channels, but that's the thing. It's, it's to protect the Masonic constitution, right? Yeah. And to protect uh, the different grand lodges and the constitutions that they govern. Um, that's why we have this uh, uh, little bit of red tape we do, unless you know someone there, then you send, uh, you send a letter or nowadays you can just send an email, you send an email to your, your lodge secretary or your provincial grand lodge secretary, and he will pass it on to the Grand Lodge Secretary about the, the lodge you would like to visit. And then he will contact the, uh, the Grand Secretary of that Grand Lodge in that country. And then they will contact the lodge you want to visit to make sure, you know, first of all, they check that it's actually one that's on their list, so to speak. Mm. Uh, it's not a clandestine lodge, as they call it in the U.S., you know, an irregular lodge. So it's not regular Freemasonry that's being practiced. So the Grand Lodge makes sure it's actually one of their lodges. And then they will contact the lodge and let them know there's a guy from this or that country who would love to go visit. Um, And then they get the confirmation back and then back along that same line it goes and you will get your confirmation. You're welcome to go visit. Then you don't have to do anything. Uh, You usually don't have to be tested or anything. There are some lodges that have traditions that you always test someone who's not from that lodge. And many other lodges are like, no, no, no. As long as we know the guy or he has that letter of introduction via the Grand Lodge, then no problem. We just welcome him. That's how it was when I went to Denmark uh, recently for Christmas and New Year's. I visited a lodge in Denmark and uh, I went through that proper chain of command, so to speak. And uh, I didn't get tested or anything. And, and I was welcomed with open arms by everyone there. And, and it was just, you know, just fantastic. But yeah, if people don't know you and you don't go through that process, it can cause problems because then they're like, well, who is this guy? And we haven't heard anything about him and he's just showing up. And then some lodges will test you. And if you pass the tests, they will let you in. But other lodges will, uh, they might not even let you in, uh, even if they could test you, simply because you have this random guy. And well, what if he happens to be so lucky that he has read some stuff online and he would be able to kind of pass a test, but he's faking it, you know? So so it depends on, on the given lodge and the given place. But uh, 
but technically, like I said, it is a big international order. It is all the same thing, but it does have some differences in the different constitutions um, because of, you know, we, we do things slightly our own way. And that's something we can get into in a few minutes too. But um, uh, in terms of in Europe, for example, uh, in, in Denmark and Sweden, and I believe in Norway too, they actually have two different types of Masonic systems, but they're both regular Freemasonry. They, uh, they mainly follow the English constitution uh, and the Swedish right, as it's called. It, it, you can't think of it uh, in terms of like the Scottish right and stuff like that. That's a whole different uh, kettle of fish. Is, there, is it true that, that there's not a 32nd degree in, in, in Europe, in the Scot? Oh, there is. There, there is. is but, I've heard but something about there only being 30 and the 32nd degree is an American thing. I did hear that while I was in the States. No, 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 no. You, you still have that. I mean, because you still have the ancient and accepted right, or it's called the ancient and accepted Scottish right in, in the U.S., but we don't really call it that here because it seems kind of weird to call it the Scottish <laughs> right when it was invented by the French and it has nothing to do with Scotland and nothing to do with Scottish Freemasonry. Oh, that's, that's another common misconception. Many people think Scottish right. Oh, right, right. As soon as you mention Scottish Freemasonry, uh, I noticed that I think it was when you were... Uh, when you interviewed, uh, I think it was Rufus Opus, and uh, you mentioned something about that, um, about Scottish Freemasonry, and he asked if it had something to do with Scottish right, and you told him, no, no, that's a whole separate thing. And it is, actually, because the Scottish right... I was right, right by accident. Yes, yes, yes. Trust you your right. intuition, people. <laughs> Even if you don't know the answer, <laughs> just, just start talking. Just, just start, start talking, talking, and sometimes you'll be right. <laughs> this is how I get exactly. through life. <laughs> No, like, but that was actually very true. Very true, because the Scottish Rite is is a separate thing. It's it's still a Masonic uh, order, but it's not it's not what we call craft Freemasonry or Blue Lodge Freemasonry. Here in Scotland, we usually nickname it the Blues. The Blues. Uh, the Blues. Right? I need to uh, get more of the Blues. I need right. to finish my Blues. <laughs> I need to finish the Blues. But that's the heart and soul of Freemasonry. That's Freemasonry with capital letters. And that's why any Freemason worth his salt, if you ask him what's the highest degree in Freemasonry, we will all answer the same thing. We'll say the third degree. Yeah. We will not talk about that 32nd degree or the 33rd degree and all that other stuff. That is tremendously popular. And now I'm bringing it back to this difference between the States and in Europe, right? That yeah. is tremendously popular in the U.S., it seems like, uh, that's my impression at least, uh, I, again, I can't speak for, for people individually, but that's been my impression from when I've uh, heard a lot of interviews uh, and a lot of podcasts uh, Freemasons from the States have done. It sounds a lot like many people sort of kind of just want to get the three degrees of Freemasonry proper, you know, core Freemasonry, what we call the blues. They kind of just want to get that over and done with as quickly as possible so they can get into the Scottish Rite. Because the Scottish Rite is a separate Masonic body, a separate Masonic order that has uh, degrees after that, like fourth degree, fifth, and so on, up to and including the 33rd degree. Uh, but the issue is, it is not under craft Freemasonry. It's a separate entity. And because of that, you will have Grand Lodges, like the, the Grand Lodge of Scotland states very specifically that we are not involved in any Masonic degrees other than the Entered Apprentice, the Fellow of Craft, and by extension, the Mark degree, and the Master Mason degree. That's it. There is nothing else called Freemasonry other than those three degrees. 
That's it. Everything after that are other Masonic degrees or Masonic bodies or Masonic orders. So they are all, yes, they are Masonic, but it's not Freemasonry proper. It's a separate thing. So the Knights Templar, it's a separate thing, which is why we say you, you can't say that if you have, like, for example, the 18th uh, Rose Quad degree or something in the Scottish Rite, then you are higher ranking, so to speak, uh, than someone who has a lower degree uh, in something else, in the York Rite, for example, because they're yeah. completely separate things. And the one thing both of these Masons have in common is they're both third degree master masons yeah right so that's the only thing is when you become a master mason all of these other things open up like the royal arch etc it's, et it's a really fascinating way to integrate a kind of egalitarian brotherhood within a hierarchical structure it's it's interesting to see those two things uh paired together so that they they work to sort of be almost a, a, a white and black extremes, you know, the structure in which uh, someone's 32nd degree and someone might be fifth degree, but then on the other, on the other pillar, we're all one. Yeah, exactly. They're exactly yeah. the same. Force and form. Master Masons. Yeah. It's, it's the same as saying if you have such and such a, a, a level in a martial art, let's say you have a, a second degree black belt, in Kyokushin uh, Karate, and someone else has a kohada maho, a brown kohada, a brown belt in in a certain capoeira group. Oh, then uh, this guy is higher ranking than that guy. You, you can't really say that because they're two completely different things. Either both martial arts, but they are two completely different things within that martial art world, and it's the same here. These two different things, it's still within the world of uh, Freemasonry, but one is, for example, Knights Templar. The other is Scottish Rite and uh, and all this other stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, so you you can only compare those degrees for people who want to compare degrees I, I love in that given system itself. That's yeah. it. You yeah, can't look course. outside of it. So that, that's why the whole thing about this 32nd degree, 33rd degree, and being this high and mighty and so on, we, we still have, like I said, we do have those degrees in, in Scotland, but uh, it's it's a very, very different beast over here than what it is in North America. It's it's not um, it's not like this massively popular thing. The the main thing in Scotland is craft Freemasonry. And then I would say the other two things that are very, very big after that would be Royal Arch and Knights Templar. And then Cryptic Council. Yeah. So, but, um, I like that you uh, did a, a little uh, uh, martial arts comparison there, uh, which, uh, which is good. We'll, we'll, do a, we'll do a segment later on getting into martial arts. Though you should have used <laughs> real examples of, of different traditions and degrees. Like I'm like third Q, Bujinkan, and you're, you're what in Bujinkan? I have Rokudan, sixth degree black belt. So we'll get there. We'll get there. But last night I was talking to a, a listener, and you know, sometimes I just talk to people on Instagram, and it turns into a call. And and he was asking a lot about, like, it throws back to the quote I opened up with a, from Yates it's about adeptship. He was asking, "What is that stuff?" I'm like, "Look, you need." I said to him, "You need to stop worrying and thinking that uh, that that has some sort of ontological value and some some to totalizing effect." 
in a person's life. Like just because you have expertise in a thing doesn't mean it applies to some other field, right? You can be adept in this system. You'd be a third degree Wiccan. It doesn't mean you're a third degree Mason, right? They, they, these terms generally an accomplishment. They don't speak to anything to do with the, the value of the human soul or how it's a comp, how accomplished it is. And you see that really well reflected in the ethos of the, the master Mason uh, fraternity where you guys, once you go through the basic three degrees, you're all equal. Right. 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 Yeah. But and that's something that, that I think this, even prior, yeah, even prior, actually, that's what I was told right after my initiation. Like you are a full mm -hmm. Mason. You can't come to the meetings until oh, yeah. you've done your third degree, um, which was fine. But, but you are a full brother. I'm like, what, even if I vanish and never come back, which incidentally Wait, in, I did in, in Canada, you can't, you can't attend meetings until you become a master mason? Yeah, that's what they told me. So I didn't. Oh, okay. So after that, my first initiation, I, after my fellow craft, uh, that's the first degree, right? Um, no, no, I that's just, the second degree. I, okay, what's the first one? First degree Entered is apprentice. apprentice. Right, so they gave me a binder, and then I had no contact with anyone for like eight months. So I just like, wow. I, I was like, and having just shut down a Golden Dawn Temple as its imperator, I, it was, it was lacking. That was lacking in content for me. I needed more to be pulled into something than here's a ceremony and, and, and here, and let's toast, drink scotch for a while and toast the queen 20, 30 times. And, uh, and we'll see you in eight months, maybe. And, wow, uh, that's too bad. it was that's really too bad. bad. It's not as too, it's not as bad as the, the deception they played on me during the initiation. That was the reason, real reason I just never went back. Um, but I wanted to join that lodge because it was the lodge that my great grandfather had been a member of, and, right. and I, there was no males in our line until me. After that, I was the first male born in that family okay. line. For, he was from Scotland, part of the Hay clan, a sept of the Stewart clan. Um, when my great grandma was Emily Hay, and they were from the you know the Highlands of Scotland, and and I really want and I, you know so I got his little Masonic pin when uh, when my grandma died. Um, Anyway, no, I wanted too, to, I wanted to, uh, they, the thing they, they deceived like me that. on, they did, yeah, they, they didn't, they didn't, it wasn't that I need my hand held, especially coming out of what I, and I was in No, no, but you, you want to get involved, right? I, 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 mean, now I, you're I, in, you want to get involved in I wasn't even allowed to go see the library. It was just like, uh, there was just no, there was no substance there. And coming, and given how much substance I had in my life during, I was doing my MDiv in theological college, right? And had mm -hmm. just closed down a GD temple. So I was you know, still working with magicians who wanted to work with me, of course, uh, mm -hmm. you know, especially my close friends. You don't stop doing magic just because there's a schism in your order or whatever, <laughs> you know? I mean, well, some people do, but that's, then, then you know what, what you've suspected all along about those people, of course. Right. Um, yeah, no. um, so, the, but the deception was they, they told me, they were concerned before admitting me into masonry because of my strong Irish and Celtic identity, um, and they were concerned about that. And I said, well, why would you be concerned? Because like, it's not like this is, why would that be an issue? They're like, well, it shouldn't be, but we thought it might be. I'm like, well, there's no like swearing to the British crown in, 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 our, in, in the masonry, right? There's no explicit, like, you know, uh, God save the queen stuff is there. And they're like, no. And then during the initiation right there, they're like, now take this vow on the British flag. And I was like, what? The one thing I did not want to do is take an oath on a British flag on an altar. 
but I was like hoodwinked and I, I, not literally, but also, but you know, and I just, I just, I just felt so betrayed and coming out of what a lot of people know, I just came out of with, uh, you know, zinky poo and all that shit. Um, the last thing I, I was hypersensitive to any shenanigans whatsoever. So it just, I was a raw nerve and I'm like, what is this? I went through it with gritted teeth and that sucked. And then afterwards it was toasting the queen all night toasting the queen to a big portrait of the queen in the common room where we were drinking scotch and getting to know each other and toasting queen. I was like, this is my nightmare. This is my literal nightmare, you know? <laughs> um, Cause I, I just identified with my Irish and Scottish heritage and I, my English family were often quite harsh with me because of my Irish roots. And I didn't identify mm-hmm. with them. I didn't respect them. Uh, in many ways because of how they treated me like oh you like ireland well they're all murderers and thieves like you know i heard that shit from my family in rotherham in yorkshire you know and uh so i was rightfully not wanting to take an oath on a british flag and then Mm -hmm. afterwards i talked to my buddy who sort of helped me get into masonry who ran the celtic butcher shop in town he was you know third top top dog mason in in the in the in the parade leader for the city and all that he heard that and he was furious. He was furious. He's like, why didn't they send you to an Irish craft lodge? I talked mm-hmm. to my buddy, Yosef. He was like, yeah, that is fucked up. What the fuck? And I was like, yeah, it sucks. Um, and I didn't even know how much it sucked at the time. So afterwards, I was like, wow, I could have had an experience that, was, that really pulled me in there if they had treated me with any amount of care. So that, that was my, that's my story. We're talking, we're doing a whole right. full hour on masonry. So I may as well get it all out there. Um, so people <laughs> yeah, know, and can, I'm sure my story does, will help people navigate masonry correctly. Cause I think done right. well, it brings so much to your life. I mean, making good men better is what we need more than ever these days. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's also why I feel that, uh, uh, when whenever I hear that uh, where people say ah, Freemasonry, but that's like an old fashioned, outdated thing. I personally feel Freemasonry is even more relevant today than it ever has been in the past because of people being as uh, as self-centered as they tend to be nowadays, as materialistic uh, as people are. You know, it's I feel something like that that actually teaches you how to think about someone else other than just yourself and how to care for your fellow man and and wanting to help someone else and, and always having that idea that don't worry, however bad it gets, there'll always be someone out there who's worse off than you. And so whenever you do have the opportunity to help someone, well, why wouldn't you? Even yeah. if it's just uh, buying someone uh, uh, on the street uh, a sandwich and a hot cup of coffee to, to keep them warm and sitting out there and it's cold, uh, you know, uh, helping someone else, uh, helping someone else wherever you can, right? I mean, uh, I, I think something like that is tremendously important nowadays. But uh, but I, I want to quickly circle back to the thing you mentioned about um, how you, you felt like you were kind of cut off in your lodge, uh, or not cut off per se, well, kind of in a sense that, okay, now that's it, so now now we'll maybe see you in eight months. Uh, that's, uh, I've never heard that before. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. Uh, here in Scotland, as soon as you're initiated, you have the right to attend each and every meeting in your mother lodge, and you can go on visitations too. The only thing, of course, you can't 
do is you can't stay in the lodge temple. You can't stay in the lodge hall during a ritual that is anything other than than the entered apprentice degree, yeah. obviously. obviously. Uh, and so some some people, they, they choose to then just not show up for a meeting if they know it's going to be a second or a third degree because they know they will only be able to be there for the quote-unquote business part, and then they get chucked out and they can sit outside and wait for an hour, hour and a half, uh, and then later they can sit and, uh, and have a few drinks and a snack and, and, and a wee blether with their brethren. Yeah. Uh, but um, but no, yeah, here in Scotland, you as soon as you're initiated, you can attend every single meeting there is and go on visitations. It's just certain things you can't be there for, of course, until you become a master mason. But And then it's sort of like everything opens up to you with the exception of, um, well, here in Scotland, two particular things. Yeah. One is, of course, a certain part of the installation ritual or the installation ceremony. But that goes for everyone. There will be a certain part where the master of the lodge is being installed. And then anyone who is not presently a master of a lodge or a past master, they get chucked out because they can't be there for that part because that's for masters only. Right. And then they all get let in afterwards after that. Uh, but then in addition to that, here in Scotland, uh, we have uh, what we call the Mark degree. Well, the Mark exists in, in other Masonic constitutions, too, but it works a little differently. Here in Scotland, the Mark degree, uh, it's often called a degree, right? Uh, and so some people mistakenly think it's a fourth degree, but it's not. There's no such thing. It's considered an extension of the second degree, the fellow craft degree. But here in Scotland, you don't get it until after you become a master mason. And after you've received your Mark degree, only then can you join what's known as the Royal Arch. Uh, so that's one particular thing where, you know, as it usually goes, when you become a Master Mason, all the doors open up. But there are some restrictions, such as, like I said, the Royal Arch. You need that Mark degree first before you can enter the Royal Arch. And then after that, you know, on to all the other stuff. If you're interested, some people are only interested in the blues. And so they stay with that for the rest of their lives. And other people eventually get interested in the Royal Arch. And then they get interested in the cryptic council. And they get interested in in the Knights Templar and so on, right? So, the, sorry, you're... Oh, you're sorry, sorry. <laughs> what, does, what, does, uh, what does HRA and SR stand for? What, what did you say one more time, please? What do the the, uh, the initials HRA and uh, SR? Um, that's a, I, that's I a, assume. I assume when it's HRA, and you said SR. Wait, yeah, because I don't want to say anything I'm not supposed to say. Uh, it was oh, just yeah. something that was popped up in my head. Let, let, let me just write it down so i can see it in well here i got another specific question while you're contemplating that let let that percolate <laughs> in the uh in the gilgalim of your soul junior deacon in scotland do they have the jd circumambulate and challenge anyone that isn't a member of the lodge before tiling and before opening now see that's the thing uh that's one thing that makes uh, scottish freemasonry unique uh, you can't say what we do generally and what we don't do uh, because <laughs> here in Scotland, uh, I'll try to keep this as brief as possible, but we have to, to look a little bit at Masonic history again in order to understand it. Um, the, 
the creation of, of the Grand Lodge in England in 1717, right? Uh, the very first Grand Lodge. Uh, so I, like I mentioned earlier, that's true. The first Grand Lodge was founded in England. Um, like I said, the oldest Masonic written records in the world are Scottish, but the oldest Grand Lodge is English. Absolutely. Okay. The second oldest is the Irish. Ironically, the, the youngest of the three is the Scottish one. It wasn't founded until 1736. But if you understand Masonic history and Scottish mentality, it makes a lot more sense. Mm. Uh, because people will then say, well, that, that's kind of ironic. Why would, if, if Scotland is, is where Freemasonry started, why would they be the last uh, uh, among the three to actually come up with a Grand Lodge? Well, because in England, like I said, it was four lodges that already existed in England that came together, decided to create this Grand Lodge system, right? So it was an easy enough thing. It was kind of like easy peasy. Yeah, off we go. And then in Ireland, they they wanted to emulate that because they saw that, that looks good. It works really well. Let's do that. And so they wanted to do the same thing. And in Scotland, of course, you had some Freemasons who then had that same idea. Aha, that looks like a good idea. We should do the same thing here. But here's the problem. You then have lodges in Scotland that have existed for over 100 years prior to this idea for a Grand Lodge popping up, this Grand Lodge system, for uh, at least 100, maybe at least 150 years. Uh, and then suddenly you have people who want to establish this Grand Lodge who's now going to tell everyone what to do and what not to do. And then, of course, you have a lot of these lodges who, who would then – you can imagine it would go something along the lines of – Well, if you're just a lodge and they're a grand lodge, you have to listen to them because they're grand. <laughs> See, that's the thing, right? That you have I know these... stuff. <laughs> it doesn't quite fly like that when you have a lodge who will say that, wait a minute, we've been around for over 100 years, and suddenly they're going to tell us how to practice the craft. If anyone should be telling anyone how to do it, we should be telling them. Right, but because can't I just say so long. <laughs> can't I just say I'm I am the grand adept and all my magic always works and all magicians should listen to me? Like of that's the way. This is the way. This is the way. Absolutely. And it never works. <laughs> <laughs> um cool. Okay. Well, however cool, much yeah. people would like to make it work like that. But see, so then the issue was well, in part that, right, you would have people who would not want to change what they were doing because they felt, well, we know what we're doing. We've been doing it for so and so long. Uh, we're not going to want to compromise that by people then telling us, now you can't do it like this and that. You have to do like such and such. And we're going to have to give up traditions we've had for a century. Forget about it. And then other lodges that were still mainly operative would be like, oh, wow, okay, great. So this grand lodge thing sounds interesting. All right, so uh, what are you going to do for, for uh, are you going to help us get more work? Are you going to distribute the uh, the different jobs we get and so on? And then the Grand Lodge was like, no, no, we're purely a speculative body. Huh, well, then what do we need you for? And they leave because it's like, well, we can't use that for anything. So that was the problem that Grand Lodge had. I, I know I'm kind of making it sort of crude and, and, and rough right here, but, but that's base, the basic gist of, of how it went. And because of that, the Grand Lodge of Scotland had to compromise a lot uh, in order to implement the Grand Lodge system. Uh, just look at it like this. A uh, hundred lodges were invited uh, to Edinburgh in 1636, uh, or sorry, in 1736, when they wanted to establish the Grand Lodge. And out of all these, around 30 showed up. I think the exact number was 33 representatives of those lodges showed up representatives of 33 out of 100. 
That's not a whole lot, right? <laughs> and the rest of them will just, you know, we're, we're not wasting our time with that. Uh, and out of that number, uh, there were several that left. And they were, it seems that they were mainly the operative lodges who then found out this Grand Lodge thing is not going to do anything for us in terms of work. So what do we care? And they left. And then you had whatever was left who then agreed that it was a good idea, but you had to get everyone on board. And so the issue is that uh, the Grand Lodge had to compromise a lot by then making certain rules where they would say, we will not interfere in your day-to-day -day activities as long as we can agree on such and such and such. Mm. And uh, it actually took time to get everyone on board. Uh, it was not until the 19th century where the last lodge finally eventually went along with it and signed onto the whole Grand Lodge thing so that the Grand Lodge would be like the governing body of Freemasonry in Scotland. But it's like we say, uh, the Grand Lodge in some countries sort of tells people what to do and what not to do, and that's it. You know, there's no arguing with it. Yeah. In Scotland, it's very different. If the Grand Lodge sends out a letter about a certain something it would like to do, it sounds more like a, a, a kind of request, you know. Well, we think it might be a good idea if, if if the Scottish craft decides to do like such and such. And we, of course, hope the brethren of our daughter lodges will agree. And then it's kind of up to the lodges to agree or not. As so, long as it's not something that falls under the laws and constitutions, then, of course, that's something everyone has agreed to abide by. But if it's outside of that... Uh, it's kind of like a suggestion, but you choose what to do. That's why here in Scotland, no one lodge uh, operates exactly the same as another. It's not If you go to England and you see a first-degree ritual in one lodge, you will have seen all of them because they all do the same thing. They all do the same ritual. They all wear the same regalia. Here in Scotland, you go to a lodge, uh, you will see all colors of the rainbow if they have a lot of visitors because each lodge chooses their own regalia colors. And uh, there, of course, there are certain. That's very rules. cool. It's very cool. Uh, I mean, we love it here. We think that always makes it interesting to visit other lodges. Also, you will notice that you can go to five different lodges that all do a first degree ritual, and you can see five different first degree rituals. They will all still be the same, like they will have the same core components, of course. All uh, the core material is still the same. Obviously, they can't just do whatever the hell they want. It still has to be, you know, there are certain elements that need to be preserved in the rituals. There are certain elements in terms of regalia and how a lodge operates that need to be maintained. But everything outside of that is sort of, yeah, you decide. And that's why it will be so, so different over here. So you can see five significantly different versions of the first degree ritual. You will recognize a lot of things, but you will be like, wow, that is so different to how we do things. And it's fascinating. It, it, it makes sure it's, it's never boring here in Scotland visiting, visiting lodges. It's never boring. Scotland is not boring in general, I found. Oh, I, I literally can't wait to visit, <laughs> especially since you guys have uh, ended and defeated COVID UK-wide. <laughs> Um, from the sounds of it. Uh, I don't know about that, but we're working on it. <laughs> well, uh, I'm just going based off what I saw. I watched Boris Johnson and like basically mm -hmm. and, and end everything and say, yeah, look, we're, we're done. We're getting back to 
normal and opening up mm-hmm. entirely. And and uh, that's just good news. I just like celebrating. New- people get mad when I like try and like when I hear something good. I'm like, hey, I think this might be real. Let's all be happy. And people are like, ah, no. It's like, come on, <laughs> come on. I don't mind a good healthy debate, but like, let's not like egg this thing on more than it needs right. to be. <laughs> you know, let's be realistic right. here. Um, so yeah, you know, Scott, I can't wait to get back to uh, visit family in the UK, of course, and uh, and and yeah, see Scotland, see you again. It's been so long. Oh, um, it's been many yeah. years. If anyone's been, been, been yeah, well, it's it, it will guaranteed happen. Um, yeah, um, yeah. There's a lot of uh, I have a lot of good uh, Celtic musician friends in Edinburgh who I've always mm-hmm. uh, been promising. You know, because when I lived in Belfast, um, and when I was uh, I was you know I was actually doing research there. Uh, for a doc, for a PhD guy uh, in the Belfast Public Archives, and my job was to read seventeenth and eighteenth century uh, minute books from meetings. Like, because mm-hmm. I, so I had a, I, I beat all of the other candidates out for the research job because of my specialty in reading uh, that period of handwriting. I was, you know, doing my doctorate on Evelyn Underhill, so I had some facility with reading manuscripts, and so I was sitting there going through the seventeenth century minute meetings of publicans of Irish mm-hmm. publicans for this blind PhD and telling him what they said so he could make notes for his postdoc um, research. And it's just a little ferry over over from Belfast to, to Scotland, which a lot of people don't realize. You can just take a little ferry over. You can put your yeah. car on it even, and it's, it's, really, it's really amazing. So, yeah, look forward to seeing, uh, seeing uh, the Celtic countries again, brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, have a wee nippy sweetie with you. <laughs> Do you, well, you know that expression, nippy sweetie? Uh, not nippy sweetie. No. It might be a Belfast one for a, for a wee dram. We'd be driving around the hill country in northern Northern Ireland, and we, you know, Glenn would be like, "Should we have a wee nippy sweetie?" I'm like, "Oh, I think so." You'd be like, "I think so." We go in and get I a tall a tall one and a short like one. That. Oh yeah, <laughs> of course, one turns into three, and and then um, then we have to let the gymnast drive, who's sober, and right. uh, <laughs> you know, well, relative, you know, Irish sober. He's Irish sober, right? So it's like you know. Let's not ask what that Irish is. <laughs> Let's not even get into what that might mean. Um, okay, so there's a little bit more Freemasonry to talk about. We've gone, we've done a good over an hour, I think, on Masonry, which I, I'm impressed that I was right. able to do, given my uh, supreme lack of knowledge about it, actually. <laughs> um, but one thing, a myth worth dispelling for people who are considering Masonry is there's always that myth out there that it's just a way for people to to make business deals and get rich. And I was very surprised after the initiation before the toasts and drinking started. And, uh, they, they had us each take turns standing up in the, in the, in the, in the social room. Mm -hmm. And they said, here's your chance to tell us about yourself. And this is also your only chance to speak about whatever your business is in life, because we will not discuss business ever again here. Your Mm -hmm. personal business or any of that has no place here. You cannot talk about it except for right now, say whatever you want. Well, one of the guys actually did a pitch. <laughs> he just was like, okay, and he pitched them. And I, everyone thought it was hilarious, right? Because it's like, hey, you said this is the one chance. <laughs> you wouldn't actually be a very good businessman if you didn't take your one chance in front of a group of people to actually pitch them. So he did. <laughs> and if Masons want to go do business on their own personal time, I'm sure that's fine. But so there's, you know, there's, there's obviously benefits to friendships, but that has nothing to do with masonry. That's just what friendship exactly. is about. <laughs> you know, right, right, right. you and me exactly. have talked about uh, working together a bit and I hope we do sometime. And that sort mm-hmm. of brings us uh, to uh, occult book publishing and your new release of Scott's discovery of witchcraft, which is going to be 
so exciting. Um, and there's a couple questions about how to get into uh, uh, book publishing from, from people here because um, some of these listeners have your books. Um, you, you put out, you don't mind if I talk about the books you put out, do you? No, no, no. No. Um, so obviously some of my, uh, some of my <clears throat> students and friends have your, have your Pat Zaleski books, um, which are best ordered directly from you. If people want to oh, get uh, the, the the beautiful editions you've done of Pat Zaleski's Egyptian uh, Godform's book and his Enochian book, the yeah. way to do that is to email you and request an invoice. Correct? Because on on Amazon they're listed as a hundred dollars, but that's they're, not they're the real price. No, 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 they're crazy expensive on Amazon. Uh, I, I know it. It sounds kind of shady <laughs> saying it like this, but that's actually the only reason why I. I made the books available on Amazon was for promotional purposes. You of know, course. So people know they exist because people look stuff up on Amazon, but I always tell people by all means, you know, get them from us directly. Don't get them on Amazon because they're way too expensive uh, simply because um, it's a very, very small business <clears throat> and the fees that you have to pay on Amazon and because of the costs of producing these books, because it is such a small business, all the books are, are, they're not done through uh, lithographic printing. They're not offset printed. So they're, they're digitally printed. And so they're done POD. It's print on demand uh, because, you, you know, we just don't have the space to stockpile thousands and thousands of books. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just the easiest way to go about it when you're a small business, but it is not the most financially viable way to do it because it's insanely expensive compared to lithographic printing. Um, uh, and so because of that, if we were to sell them at the regular price on Amazon, the fees after we've paid those and after we abide by Amazon's regulations for uh, like a minimum shipping and stuff like that, uh, it would end up basically costing money for some of the titles and others. You would end up making maybe two dollars per book or something like yeah. that uh, and then yeah some of the other books are so incredibly uh, expensive to produce that you actually end up losing money if you do it like that so we have to make up for that loss and because of that the books are insanely expensive there but we you know, we still have people who try to buy them there but whenever they get in touch with us i always say please by all means contact us directly you used to be able to buy the books directly through the website but then <clears throat> We had to change web hosts and this and that, and then COVID happened and we had to uh, focus our time elsewhere. And so I just decided, okay, we'll just leave the, the website for now because people started getting comfortable with this whole uh, pay through PayPal. They get an invoice, they pay the PayPal invoice and we send out the books. It's yeah. basically the same as when you buy them through a website, except you don't have a website as a mediator. You just send all the information directly instead of through the site. Um, so and we kept doing that for a while. And so, yeah, that, that's what people can still do. But the new website is still coming up and then it'll go back to the old format of you can just dump stuff in a shopping cart and then, you know, off beautiful. you go. And the um, email to message you uh, in case people want to get the Zaleski, uh, Anakian book or uh, Godform book or any of your other books, what is that email? That email is hermetic hyphen science at hotmail.com wonderful that's a hotmail that's an up-and-coming new uh new service right right 
<laughs> hey man, if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 uh, 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 brother Mason, uh, has asked, uh, do you have any new books coming up? And of course he, we all know the answer to that. And it is, <laughs> it is Scott's discovery of witchcraft. Please uh, tell and show us whatever yeah. you can about this stunning and brave new project of yours. Well, um, first of all, it's it's actually it's more specific than just Scott's discovery of witchcraft, which is what makes it special. Um, <clears throat> the book is actually entitled uh, "The Grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft," uh, because um, the thing is, Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft, originally published uh, in England in 1584, uh, was a book that was so, it was sort of his way of of uh, lashing out a bit at the Catholic Church for superstitious practices, for, uh, you know, just an unfair treatment of people that were either just what he considered just con artists, idiots, or uh, mentally challenged individuals, basically. Uh, And he felt that a lot of these people were being prosecuted uh, as witches. And a lot of it was just because of superstitious Mumbo jumbo, you know, that's not in his own words. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's basically how he would put it. He would use a lot of derogatory terminology towards people who believed in superstitious practices of different kinds or people who claimed to be uh, magicians and conjurers and so on. He, he, oh, sorry about that. Um, he would uh, He would use a lot of derogatory terminology to make them sound as con artists, basically. And... Uh, and people shouldn't be deceived by that. And Was that to uh, cover his own ass, or did he actually believe that? You no, know, he actually did believe that. Okay. Uh, he, he had sort it seems like Scott had a, a kind of a strange relationship to magic in general, because he was definitely of the belief that, quote-unquote, witchcraft, which uh, back in those days uh, didn't have anything to do with modern-day Wicca. It wasn't a religious thing, and it wasn't a, a, a nature-loving thing. Witchcraft back in those days was a term that was used uh, in a derogatory sense when it came to magic. It was basically wicked magic. You know, it, it was using magic for evil purposes. That was witchcraft, right? And I know people today don't like to hear that, but that's just a historical fact. That's how the term was used back in those days. That term uh, goes back to ancient Assyria. When I was in England uh, in 2019, I went to a lecture by, at the British Library um, mm-hmm. I ran into actually uh, one of the other presenters who I had met at the Berlin Culture, where I was presenting in Berlin 2018. And I randomly met her outside of Geraldine's shop in London, and she mm-hmm. invited us to a lecture of a PhD who they just found a new chunk of a cuneiform tablet and reattached it to this other one, and they got something new. And what they got new was the illegal illegality of witchcraft. Obviously, mm-hmm. the word wasn't actually witchcraft in Assyrian, but it's the equivalent. And what it meant was right. magic used to hurt another person. And exactly. that really, that's still what, when people, especially with all the dark fluff and LHP, left-hand path stuff these days, and they're re- this, this sort of this quest to redefine black magic as an entire field of study, which I don't think it is. I think magic is just one field of study. Black magic is a term traditionally we apply when someone uses that the field of magic to hurt a person. Right. Right. I don't consider black magic to be a field of study. And when when Pete left when left hand path people try and describe what they see it as to me, I'm like a so called right hand path people, which I, I don't think that term. I think is a false dichotomy. Of course, um, 
we do all the stuff you're describing. They're like, no, no, in the left-hand path, to find your inner light and to higher self, you have to go into the darkness and, and, and face these demons. So like, that's, that's all of us. That's not a left-hand path thing. And they're like, really? I was sure that's what I was told it was. It's like, no. They're like, but that's what black magic is. I'm like, no. No. It just isn't. I mean, sure, we can redefine things however we want. Words change. Right. Meanings change. But sometimes they shouldn't. <laughs> Right, right. Exactly. How useful is it? It's like the thing with people now using the word invocation to describe pulling a summoning spirit into your body. Okay, if you want to say that's what invocation is now, you can, but think of all the students then, whenever they read any historical magical literature, any grimoire whatsoever, any liturgy, when they see the word invocation, then they're not they, going to know what's being no, talked they will about. Misunderstand. They, they will misunderstand what's being talked mm -hmm. about. So, so, so there's the conundrum. Anyway, we got to, right. you know, right? You know, um, no, but that, like I said about uh, uh, Scott, and whenever he used the term witchcraft, that he used it that in the was, Assyrian sense, right? <laughs> he used it in that derogatory sense. You know, it's it's something. Oh, it's terrible and it's bad. It's it's evil. It's wicked. You know, and then he goes and, on to say how to do it exactly. Well, that's the thing, right? <laughs> because. Um, he he presented a lot of stuff in the discovery of witchcraft where um, where he actually uh, unveiled uh, various tricks of prestidigitation of uh, legerdemain, a sleight of mm. hand, right? Uh, and he showed a lot of uh, uh, props and so on for performing that what people today would call stage magic, right? Yeah. Uh, to show people that this is not real. So don't don't go executing and torturing people and whatnot because they do something like that and you think it's magic. And the same when it came to superstitious things. And then he put in examples of different, like what uh, um, I would define as miscellaneous spells, like uh, um, folk magic type practices, uh, simpler, less ritualistic practices, such as, you know, write a certain name on a piece of paper and, and then uh, throw it in the fire and such and such will happen, you know. Um, yeah. uh, and he would put a lot of these things in and he would say, this is just, uh, pardon my, my French, but uh, to put it bluntly, this is just superstitious crap. Right. That was basically what he said. And then we get. I think we have different definitions of what French is, brother. <laughs> <laughs> but you're a father. You're a father. <laughs> Everyone I know who's a new parent has has a completely altered vocabulary after their kids are born. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> usually like, how it goes. <laughs> pardon my French, but that's darn stupid or darn silly. It's like, what the fucking hell are you talking about, weirdo? <laughs> All right, sorry okay. for making it weird with my... With no, my, my I love it. You actually do speak French. French. How, how many languages are you at now? Uh, well, technically, I don't speak French because uh, I'm terrible at actually speaking it because I all, only ever study it for the purpose of being able to read it. Right. And so I got really good at reading French and even translating French, uh, but not speaking it. And, and my ears are so untrained that when I hear people speaking French, I lose out on like 70% of what they say because it's just never what I focused on, which is something I would like to change one day in the future I, because I think it's kind of it's kind of dumb that I can read French, but I can't speak it. It just seems kind of stupid. It makes you know? sense so, to me. I'm Canadian. I, 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 I just learned it. <laughs> as a Canadian, I just learned enough French to get out of class. You know, <laughs> toilette. <laughs> Will you come right, right back? Wah. 
the Canadian. No, so I you can't include French on my list. So no, I. But I speak, English I speak is even your second language. language. Yeah, English, English is your second language, language, which is remarkable. Is <laughs> <laughs> so Danish and uh, and Portuguese. Yeah, Brazilian Portuguese and Swedish and Japanese. Wow, Swedish and Japanese. Yeah. You're going to have to try that one again. Oh, no, let's not. <laughs> no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Okay, okay. Du horet yetnefe ansik. Ansik? Yetnefe? I'm probably oh, you mean you, you mean ansikt? Ansikt, ansikt. Du horet yetnefe ansikt. Ja, jag tyckte bara uh, du sa någonting som du har ett, ett du har ett n- någonting men jag kunde inte höra vad det andra vad det andra var för någonting. I don't know that much. I do know. <laughs> I do know. Din mamma suger mig brödspit. <laughs> hey, this podcast already has an explicit an explicit rating automatically. <laughs> And Japanese. Well, it's usually stuff like that that people learn, though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we'll get to. We'll talk more about Japanese when we do a little, when we chat right. a bit more about right. uh, martial arts and stuff. But yeah, so so uh, do you? Uh, okay. Do you, ha- you want to show any of? Uh, do you do you want to show any of glimpses of of the? Oh yeah, yeah. Book? Sorry, yeah, we'll do that too. Yeah, uh, because I you're doing a fine edition. You're doing a fine edition. Uh, yes. And and a standard paper, a hardcover edition. A standard and, hardcover. Right. And they both, what you've shown me of them, both look gorgeous. The fine edition, honestly, might be taking fine editions to a new level. I think. Oh, thank you very much. Well, I, I mean, I really appreciate that. We'll let people be the judge. <laughs> right, right, of course. And you're really, it's going to be only fifty copies. Is that correct? The limited uh, fine edition is only going to be fifty copies, and then done. And it's going to be that uh, typical it. first come, first serve, you know. Uh, and it's going to be a pre-order um, to make sure yeah. you know we we get it uh, we get it out of the way. Not not in terms of the book, but but you know, let people get in there and reserve their copies, uh, and then done. We shut that down, and we can start production uh, to make sure that uh, whoever wants a copy of that book, they get. A, yeah, a copy of the book. So, um, and it's a famous Edinburgh bookbinder doing it, correct? No, it's actually a Glasgow. Oh, right. Bookbinder. It's it's a, a Glasgow printing company. It's uh, based out of Govan in Glasgow, and uh, they have uh, they have two bookbinders uh, working there. Uh, fantastic bookbinders, and Gordon, the head bookbinder who has been in charge of this, he's done a fantastic job. And it was just a, a privilege getting to to hang out with him uh, so many afternoons and so many mornings, just standing there watching him work. And, and he would explain everything to me, and you know, because I have a huge passion for bookbinding too, and I, I've studied a lot of bookbinding on my own. Yeah. So getting to actually stand there watching a master at work, you know, and and hearing all the details, you know, it was just it was fantastic. But but yeah, um, it's true. The the book will be done first in this limited. Fine edition, uh, limited to 50 copies. And as soon as they're done, uh, as soon as they're all sold out, production will start. And uh, as soon as uh, production is set off, uh, the the standard hardcover is going to start to come out. So obviously the fine edition is going to be sold first, and then the standard hardcover is going to come out. But um, 
before here's, uh, here's I the short? here's the first book I ever bound. Oh, nice! And I so I was every day after school for a while it, with a Scottish bookbinder in North Vancouver named Neil Wilkie, and he had bound all my dad's books for him in the seventies, and then I met him. In the, in the you know late 90s and, and went every day after school and he taught me book binding and helped me bind my graduating thesis um, and you know taught me how to do that and then I showed it to my teachers and they went to him and they learned book binding and started book binding classes for the high school and next thing you know my sister who was younger than me is binding all these books for me which became like my magical diary books up there on the top shelf like half of Very those are nice. books bound in silk and leather by my sister in, in high school <laughs> God very, bless her. Very nice. Yeah, bookbinding is a beautiful, passionate, wonderful thing for me, and I, I'm so glad you feel mm-hmm. the same way about it. So, yeah, let's get on to a little show and tell. Right. So, um, before I show it, I should probably uh, finish mentioning exactly what it's about. Uh, like I said, um, in uh, book 15 in Scott's Discovery of Woodcraft, and that was the thing you hinted at, that's where he gives you all of the how-to things, right? And this was sort of an example of his... Um, to, to bring up some of the more ceremonial stuff. Like I said, uh, Scott had this weird relationship with magic where, like I said, uh, when it came to witchcraft and stuff like that, he, he was very adamant about it's just a load of crap. Uh, but at the same time, he had tremendous respect for Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa and his De Oculta Philosophia Libri Tres, uh, the three books of occult philosophy. He was actually, uh, he spoke very highly of that. So it's kind of weird, right? Because here you have a book that uh, is entirely dedicated to the occult sciences, mainly magic. And then Scott speaks highly of it. And elsewhere, he just totally bashes magic as the most ridiculous thing in the world. Um, But yeah, so in book 15, he gathered, um, it appears that he got two different manuscripts. It may have been just one manuscript. But uh, I'm inclined to think it was two, and so is the author of this book, also inclined to think it was two, uh, written by someone just identified as T.R., and the other one is John Kokars. And it is impossible to find that source material today. Uh, The oldest source you can possibly find is Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft of 1584. Uh, And so he basically put, it's an entire grimoire that he put there for everyone to get all the instructions uh, and because, ironically, you have this book by Reginald Scott that just bashes magic left and right, and ironically, it became one of the source works of magical practitioners back then. <laughs> it became like a, a massive influence on magicians of the day. And it has influenced people all up until today. Unfortunately, the discovery of witchcraft is not as it's easily glanced over these days, which I personally think is really sad. And the same for the author of this book, which was why it just had to be done. Right. Uh, Because it greatly influenced Ebenezer Sibley in in the 18th century. It influenced uh, Frederick Hockley and Francis Barrett. And it it, it has had uh, a lot of influence. Uh, this grimoire section. And because of that, the author, uh, whom I can't tell you much about, um, the author goes by the name of Frater S. That's it, you know, uh, and uh, obviously at Hermetic Science Enterprises, we respect an author's desire to be anonymous. So uh, that's that. Uh, But um, he really wanted the, this grimoire section from the discovery of witchcraft to be published as an actual grimoire, 
you know, oh, yank wow. it out, yank it oh, out wow. of all that other stuff in the discovery of witchcraft and just have that grimoire, but present it as an actual grimoire with all of the, the details, all of the, the annotations, uh, footnotes, appendices, additional illustrations, whatever, to make it into a fully fledged grimoire. And that's exactly what this is. Oh, gorgeous. So this is the limited fine edition of the Grimoire of Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which comes in a fancy slipcase, of course, which is not only wrapped in the highest quality material available, but at the same time, it's actually, it's very difficult to see, but if I turn on the light, you might be able to yeah. see of, how yeah. it has, it's lined yeah. with it's the lined. velvet on no, the inside to really protect the, the leather. Wow. And then, of course, gold foiling on the front. And yeah, a lot of gold foiling all around. And then the book itself oh my is God. bound. Crap. It's bound in oh, Chieftain Goat. I think that might called. be the sexiest thing I've seen in two years. <laughs> this is, like I said, Chieftain Goat, this leather, and it's insanely expensive. <laughs> and it Oh, Can you hold the fantastic. spine up to the camera there? Absolutely. Just hold it there steady for a minute. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jesus. And How many pages has, is the whole thing? It looks huge. See, it is, because originally, <laughs> if you just take that grimoire section and uh, the other section, which we can discuss in a couple of minutes, uh, that's also from the Discovery of Witchcraft uh, that's included here, because it's just as grimoire relevant as all the other stuff. Uh, originally, that together might have been maybe 150 pages or something along those lines. Uh, but this book is 464 pages. So a lot of additional stuff has been added to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought at first maybe you're calling it a grimoire for, for marketing, which is brilliant. But this oh, is no. way – now I actually feel like I have to have the special edition. So people, please donate to the podcast so I can buy this book. <laughs> Well, it is. It has really been made to be a fully fledged grimoire, not just in terms of the author's contents, but also in terms of how I wanted to edit and design the book. And that's why I insisted on having it exactly like this. So it's traditional bookbinding style, you know, uh, in actual leather, not not pleather, not that faux leather stuff. Not that I mind that or anything, but it had to be done properly. And with raised spine bands and everything, you know, and classical format. I just love this old school format oh, yeah. that you don't really see anymore unless it's a book that uh, is like 150 years old or something. And then I wanted it, again, because I wanted it to be a genuine grimoire, right? So I took two yeah, of the main pentacles. Yeah. This is the pentacle that uh, gives the person who has it on him or her uh, mastery over the spirits. It, it makes the spirits obey you, basically, if you have that pentacle. And so naturally, it had to be on the front of the book. And the pentacle on the back is the one that whoever carries this pentacle, uh, he will not be able to be harmed by any foe. I'm paraphrasing here, but what a great uh, one to put on the front of the book. That's why I thought they yeah. were. Hey, this is an actual grimoire. It should actually have these pentacles, and it's it, an actual right? talisman of protection. There you go. You can. Yeah, the book could be a talisman of protection, right? Against magic and harm, and then people can consecrate Beautiful. it if they so wish, right? I mean, uh, 
And yeah, you want to give some good methods on consecration on the inside? (laughs) 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 We like to have fun. There will be some in the book. There will be some in the book. book. And asked and answered. (laughs) Asked and answered. What else could we want to know? Uh, The end paper is hand marbled end paper. And I picked this because I thought it it fit the theme that I really wanted to use this dark red leather uh, and I wanted to have black segments on it. And so because of that, I wanted the end paper to be this red and black mixture as well. And then uh, the satin bookmark inside, I then wanted black because it it goes well with the rest of it, right? Yeah. So. Oh my God. uh, That's, uh, that's. I can't believe I get to debut this, this, this beautiful thing of beauty. Yeah, this is actually the first time the book is is gonna be displayed to the public. It's the first yes. time it's gonna be shown because it hasn't even been officially released yet, but it will be released along with this. So yeah, this and is, uh, uh, how how many thousands of dollars will that cost? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Uh, <laughs> I was given some advice on how much I should charge for it, and I was like, I can't get away with that. But oh, but you should. <laughs> <laughs> I was told I, I should charge 1,500 pounds a copy. But I said, no, 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 it's not going to be like that. <laughs> no, I mean, uh, either way, once all 50 copies are sold, you know it's going to be selling for that amount, or if not more, especially yeah, since it's yeah. so gorgeous and there's only 50. Like, uh, it's easy to be frustrated with that, but it's also understandable because it will instantly shoot up in value. Like. You know, right. I know it's, I know I just realized I'm sounding like I'm making a sales pitch, but this is, we're talking <laughs> about occult publishing. We're doing a whole convo of occult publishing. So, you know, we'll, uh, it's appropriate. I mean, people out there are actually interested in getting into occult book publishing and, and they should be, right. it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to do with your life. Oh, if you love occultism and you love ancient manuscripts and history and all of that, like what a wonderful thing to do. The fact that there's actually a market for it for the first time, probably, since the library of Alexandria or the medieval manuscript rage, when people were often just mm-hmm. inventing manuscripts to sell to nobles who had the money right. and, and want, you know, that those are out there. That's a real thing. People, um, you know, not literally not every single grimoire from the medieval period was legit. Uh, it just no. wasn't, but like, you know, witchcraft was illegal 70 years ago. Right. So we're at a, we have a, there's an open, there's an, we're in a, unparalleled time for access to information and people willing to to invest in things that are worthwhile and so it's a great right. it's a great thing for us to encourage people to keep doing it because uh, how many good publishers out there are there in your opinion how many good publishers and now a word from our sponsors at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Well, I, I don't like We're to... We're talking shop. Right, right. Uh, I just, I don't like to speak ill of my colleagues. Well, which one? No, no, just <laughs> no. Say, say which ones you like the best, that you think are the best. Well, that's the thing. I mean, uh, there are a couple of, I especially like the smaller publishers, a lot of the smaller publishers, because they, they tend to uh, focus a lot more on the quality of what it is they're producing. Uh, not to say anything bad about larger publishers like Samuel Weiser, Llewellyn Publications, and so on, because um, regardless of what people want to say about larger publishers and, and the, the standard paperbacks that come out uh, from these places, uh, one thing that has to be remembered is that they have a lot of classics. They have a lot of really yeah. important works. And this is something, obviously, that should be respected. But <clears throat> I have to admit, because I am a traditionalist by nature, as you very well know, uh, and because I am very old-fashioned, I like the attention to detail uh, which is why I wanted to do that with my own publishing company as well. And that's why I especially like the smaller publishers and, and uh, the attention to detail they put in the work that they do. And so, um, you know, that of, of putting out, for example, fine editions, uh, I don't care about books costing two, three, four, five hundred pounds when they are done right. And it just looks beautiful. And it's not just a book. If you just want a book, well, then go and get the paperback because it's a lot more affordable. But when you get something like that, you actually get a piece of art at the same time, right? And and I, I love that part, which was why I wanted to get into that as well. And yeah. so smaller publishers that do that, uh, I have great love and admiration and respect for them. Um, you could really start- think of these publishers actually as artists, I'm realizing. Right. It's, that's, that's they're artists. That's exactly right. That's if you, exactly if you, right. If you go into this kind of publishing, this kind of quality artistic publishing, it's because you're a fucking artist, I think. Right. Maybe. Right. Maybe. I don't know. And, it looks and I like, like a, the ones that, that do this classical type of work with their publishing too, like old school type of design and so on. Just, just uh, these little things, but that I think mean the world. And that's why I'm so adamant about using this stuff myself is just simple things like using a big uh, uh, leaf letter type drop caps and stuff like that uh, in your typesetting and and using using some gothic lettering for the title pages and mm. stuff like that. You know, these, these little things, because there are too many of these uh, books out there today where the content is phenomenal. It's a fantastic book you have, 
but yeah. it looks so dull and dry because it has not been typeset properly. There's been put no no detail into it whatsoever. And so, well, we, we don't have to mention any specific works or anything, but there are just some of them that just, they just look so dull and boring and it's so sad because the the, the contents are, are fantastic. Um, and I know there will be people who will say that, well, it doesn't really matter as long as the contents are good. That's all that matters, which is true. That is number one. But the sad part is if people flip through a book like that and, oh, my God, this just looks so boring, they put it away and they miss out on the otherwise amazing content. So I know how the old yeah. saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover. But those of us in publishing, we actually live a lot by, oh, you need to make uh, sure that people can judge a book by its cover so that it'll have a cool looking cover that'll capture their attention, but for the right reason, so that they will know this book is fantastic. This book is phenomenal. So yeah. pick it up and take a look. So, so yeah, yeah. Um, I'm guessing then that you, you, you like so the, the work that uh, Scarlet Press and Ouroboros do, those sort of ones? Those were exactly the two I was about oh, really? to mention. Oh, really? Oh, wonderful. Scar Scarlet Imprint, uh, the books they have uh, produced are, are really, really, really beautiful. They've produced some really nice uh, limited fine editions. Um, I, I might not be the biggest fan of the, the material itself. Some of it I am, but a lot of it is uh, very left-hand path oriented and all this stuff. And mm -hmm. As you know, I, I don't have any interest in that whatsoever. Uh, so, the, but, but that's fair enough. That, that's uh, sort of uh, what they focus on and that's perfectly fine. It's, it, it doesn't mean they can't produce uh, beautiful books. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. So I have the utmost respect for the quality of, their fine editions and Ouroboros Press, same for them too. They they publish some fantastic, uh, some fantastic books. Yeah, my buddy Joe uh, from the good old uh, Homsey days is said told me he's sending me his uh, Hermetic Mytho Hermetic Dictionary. Um, right. That's by Ouroboros, so I look forward to finally owning an Ouroboros one. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, and Scarlet Imprint too. It's just they do cost a few pennies. So, what is the actual cost of this book, the fine fifty-one edition? Well, see, that's the thing. Um, like I said, I, I don't want to go crazy in spite of what people recommended I do, because I want it to be affordable at the same time. Uh, because I want people to have the opportunity to actually buy these books. Uh, yeah. And so because of that, I, I think it should be a fair price compared to uh, the expenses and so on. Obviously, it costs a minor fortune to make these books. If you look at how producing a paperback uh, of like uh, this, this format and this size could cost you a couple of bucks, right? Whereas producing a book like this, naturally, yeah. it's a whole different ballgame, right? Uh, so the price has not been set in stone yet, but it will be roughly 300 pounds. All right. Uh, uh, as, up, soon as, as soon as the book is officially released, uh, obviously, then, then the, the fixed price is going to be there, but it will be roughly 300 pounds. So expect it to be between 295 pounds and 315 pounds. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't want to go... Uh, much higher than that since it's the first fine edition coming out. So I want people to be able to celebrate that a little bit too, instead of saying, Oh, this book is going to be 450 pounds. Good luck. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. I, I want, I want it to be as affordable as possible while still costing what it needs to cost to, to actually be able to, to make the wheels turn. 
Yeah. You know well, I think that's a very reasonable price for how, how beautiful it is. And for those people just listening uh, to the pre-release podcast audio, uh, the video will be up very soon and you can see what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. And I think you'll agree with me that it is worth the, worth the, worth the, the shekels. So yeah, that's what I, what I'm thank you from the occult community for taking the time to put out such a beautiful thing uh, of a book that is uh, worthy, it seems. And it's been reworked into a grimoire, which is just, I mean, fabulous. It it looks like it's actually going to be equally appealing to ceremonial magicians and grimoires as well as uh, witches. It very well might be. It very well yeah. might be. I mean, obviously, it's uh, the the material is is it's classical Western magic. So it's it's uh, grimoire tradition, ceremonial magic. So so it's all about uh, magical implements, magical circles, and uh, evoking spirits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so for all of you, discovery of witches fans <laughs> out there of the show. You can own your own copy of the real Book of Life. <laughs> well, I, I just really hope people will appreciate it for the uh, it's a work the of author's art. vision that it was, and then also what I have tried to do in terms of of honoring that uh, that vision he had of wanting to put out uh, an, an actual grimoire that's worthy of the content. You know, because we both agree that this the content is just amazing. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, I've been a, a huge fan of the uh, that grimoire section of the discovery of witchcraft for years, and it's the same for the author. And so, wanting to put out an actual grimoire version of it, you know, and and dispense with all the other stuff that has nothing to do with it, and just focus on that. And then I was like, this has to be done right. So it has to be done in this fancy edition as well. And I was very adamant about everything needs to be added to it. Then, so there will be no gaps. Mm. And so the book contains and that's yeah that's something i would really like to mention that um, people who are familiar with the discovery of witchcraft will probably be wondering and that is they will wonder is it a book based on the first edition of 1584 or the third edition of 1665 because that is actually very important (laughs) well i haven't watched that in years (laughs) in any case Uh, it's based on the 1665 edition, the the third edition of 1665. Because um, for those who are not familiar with that, allow me to explain really briefly. Uh, In 1665, a third edition of the Discovery of Witchcraft was published, but it was not published the same way. There was an unknown contributor that Elizabeth Butler, in her book uh, Ritual Magic, uh, that she uh, tends to refer to in that book as anti-Scott, because it was clearly a pro-magic individual. We have no idea to this day who it is. You can speculate, but we don't know who that person was. But it was clearly someone who was not only pro-magic, but who was also very experienced. And that person added a few additional chapters to book 15, a chapter on magical circles and a chapter on consecration and some stuff like that. Uh, And in addition to that, uh, in the end of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, there is a section on devils and spirits. And it's all he's talking about the superstitious things and and what the church says about devils and spirits and blah, blah, blah. Then in that third edition, that clearly that same person. 
Uh, again, there's no name attached to it, but it's clearly the same pro magic person who added another part after that that is also concerning devils and spirits, but this is clearly from a magician's point of view. So here he is analyzing what, what the devils are and what ghosts are and all this and giving you explanations as to what they are in the magical sense. Mm. And there is a lot of fascinating information there. It's kind of like a sounds uh, very similar a, a to a magician's uh, bestiary, sort of, if you will. It sounds similar <clears throat> to uh, to the stuff in Rudd's grimoire. Right. He goes a lot into what gnomes are. The, they they right. were very fascinated in those centuries uh, about you know how to create a fairy changeling by getting getting busy with a spirit or elf. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, the, uh, hey, this is this is what we did before Netflix. <laughs> right. That was how people found entertainment. <laughs> before Netflix and chill, it was uh, <laughs> hunting down fairies for a fun tryst. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Amazing. But this, this was a very, very, very fascinating section that definitely tied in so well with uh, the grimoire contents of book 15 in, in the discovery of witchcraft. And that's why that definitely needed to be, to be added to it. Uh, and so the book consists of, of those two parts, basically uh, that grimoire section and then uh, that uh, concerning devils and spirits. Um, and uh, on top of that, the, the author Frateres added a, a bunch of explanatory footnotes you know, things to clarify, certain things here and there, but also uh, even though the book mainly caters to the practitioner, <clears throat> it does also, um, it does not ignore the academically interested. Obviously, those who are hardcore academics just want the original and take a look at that, right? But... Um, oh, there might be a few of the 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 ESSWE people and ASE people out there in Amsterdam who might appreciate right. what you've done there. Uh, maybe, maybe uh, you know... Right, because sometimes they, they do... They do like to see, okay, well, well, as long as it's of academic interest in some form or fashion, we should take a look at it. And, well, one and that's thing exactly what the author wanted to do. One thing a lot of people don't realize about the academics who study esotericism is that even us right now having this conversation and the production of your book there, like they don't see this as participating in the academic study of esotericism. We are actually right now their primary source material they're studying right. us right now <laughs> there there are people writing papers on us like this kind of conversation the fact that uh modern magicians are putting out books like you you are putting out here that is subject for a paper we're not participants with them in the study of esotericism by any means from their point right. of view we are the subject of their study <laughs> a lot that's of people don't realize true. that <laughs> that's actually very true very true and it, yeah. you can especially say that too since the author of, of, of this book uh, is himself a practitioner of classical Western magic. And, and, and in your opinion, as a human being, this is a useful book to a magician. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, having dealt with uh, occult publishing, with esoteric publishing in all these years, uh, and having read a bunch of this material myself and so on, it's, uh, uh, you know, oh, Absolutely. This would definitely be useful. And especially because of all the footnotes and things that, that have been added and all the appendices 
that has been added to the book as well, because uh, a lot of the stuff in the different magical operations covered in, in this grimoire it will it'll then say stuff like, okay, then you have to do this and that prayer, or, or then you have to recite this and that psalm, et cetera, et cetera. And then obviously that would mean someone would have to stand there with the grimoire in one hand and a big fat Bible in the other hand, or at least a, a, a buttload of notes and stuff. To dispense with all that, all of the psalms and prayers and so on that are referenced in the operations are given in appendices in the book. So you basically just have to flip back and forth to find what you're looking for. And, and with, uh, a, with a beautiful little ribbon, that's even... Right, 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 with a little yeah. ribbon. <laughs> and hey, I'm not recommending people alter the fine edition of the book if they buy it from you. But as someone, as, as, as when I learned bookbinding, I realized how easy it was to add my own ribbons to things if I wanted more. It's very easy to, well, then there you go. to take a popsicle stick and press on a glued little ribbon to your book. <laughs> Though I'm not saying people should alter this masterpiece, but you know, you can do that. I do that with my uh, Skinner books. I glue on my own little ribbons and that way I have, mm-hmm. and they're extremely even more useful because they are extremely useful. Right. Um, and that's, and they're made to be accessible and useful, which is, which is great. So, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. Yeah. Right. And this is also something that people are, are really going to appreciate about this book is that it, it's like both the author and myself, we've gone through all of the efforts we possibly could to make this book as complete a grimoire as possible. Obviously, there will always be some things that are just uh, from like from a historical perspective, it's just like it's impossible to identify a certain something so you can speculate. Uh, and then that's as far as it goes. I mean, because there are some things to that were written in a certain way. Uh, and then I was thinking, oh, it's too bad. We, we can't do anything about that. We can't find it. Uh, but it was just impossible to track down. Uh, and yeah. so, you know, you make do with what you have, right? But everything has otherwise been, uh, everything that's been referenced is then put in the back. Even the, the holy water formula that's given in it to, to make holy water is based on the Catholic formula. And so because of that, that Catholic formula, because there are many inconsistencies, as you know, in grimoires, there are always inconsistencies. There are things that are are, are misspelled and, and miswritten and this and that. I, you know, I think you're always, wrong on that, brother. I think every oh, single yeah. one of those instances is an intentional blind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's 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 how you're really supposed to look at yeah. it. <laughs> well, that's how I read typos in, in like modern occult books. It's just a blind. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's all intentional. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. masters of blinds out there, uh, you know, shout out to Nick. <laughs> we love you. I love you. Um, uh, I was going to say, do you want to show off quickly the, the standard hardcover? Because it's actually also gorgeous. And uh, the printer, whoever you're working with, has certainly upped their game, I think, um, recently in, in quality. So that's really, it's a beautiful thing for, uh, for us to see um, the more accessible hardcover version. For, for everyone out there who didn't... Uh, Make right. a billion dollars during a co- during COVID. <laughs> right, and so can't afford the fancy edition. Well, this is what oh, the God. standard hardcover is going to look like. I love that cover um, so much. Oh my God! And it's then give you a, a view uh, back, and then oh, of baby. course, uh, always have to add a little bit of stuff to the flaps as well yeah. about the book itself, and then and. Did anyone? There were two uh, people. There were two people who got to have a, a little uh, sneak a peek at this book. Um, so apologies I did, I to anyone. I didn't get anyone. my copy. 
No, that's why Apollodius. Why wasn't I one of the two people? Well, that's the thing. We, we weren't actually talking about the book at that time. I will happily uh. include you in the next publication. Uh, yeah, so I actually sent a copy to uh, to Gary, uh, Gary St. Nottingham, who himself is is not at all an unknown author in uh, in terms of occult literature. Uh, Gary has put out a lot of really cool books on on both the magic and alchemy. Um, and I I greatly respect uh, Gary and his works, and because of that, I and because I know he is very much into classical Western magic himself, I wanted to ask if he was willing to accept a copy, read it, and give me his honest opinion, and if he liked it, if he would want to write a blurb, a short blurb for the dust jacket. And I sent one to uh, Brian or Frater Ashen Shasan, who is also a, a very popular author these days and a very well known in the circle of, of grimoire practitioners, right? And we, I we love him as well. Yeah, we love him so much on this podcast. We don't even call him Ash and Chassan. We call him Ashy Chassie. Ashy Chassie, that's right. <laughs> I think in, in I think in Hebrew the emphasis would even be uh, I think it would be Ashen Ashen Hassan. I think in Hebrew that's how the emphasis would be on the uh, syllables Ashen Hassan. Um, right, but right. it's his name, so whatever he wants. Um, and he's got yeah, such a great yeah, sense of, of humor. So you sent a copy to him, and what did he have to say about the book? Well, if you want me to, I, I can read the two blurbs oh. that they wrote for it. I think that's like. what we're here for. All right. Well, then uh, let me read <laughs> what, uh, what Gary wrote first. Uh, Gary wrote, This new work, presented by Frater S., gives the occult practitioner a clear and useful means of ingress into the Elizabethan occult world via a literary work that has not only been highly influential in the later writings that were produced by Sibley, Barrett, and in more recent times, Paul Hewson, but has also been used successfully by a wide variety of magical practitioners over the years. Now, today's occult student for the first time can study and practice the material in this clear and concise presentation. And then uh, Brian, or Frater Ashen Shasan, or Ashi Chassi, as you say, <laughs> wrote, Scott's discovery of witchcraft stands as a pivotal source for Western classical ritual magic. Frater S. does a superbly skilled job at presenting this classic in an organized and usable manner. In much the way classical magical texts are being translated, he presents the material faithfully as it is with noted corrections, changes, and observations where the text is likely to make the most sense. Brian uh, is a, is a, is a, is a, a man with great, uh, you know, skill with words, unlike me, apparently, <laughs> from what I just said. <laughs> oh, it's not my most eloquent morning, um, though we did, I did have to get up at 7 a.m. for us to do this today. Um, right, it's the most fun that. I've had at, se- <laughs> it's the most fun I've had at 7 a.m. since uh, last time I probably had a girlfriend, I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, you know, yesterday I was carving on my hazel wand before sunrise and after, uh, uh, I know it's retrograde, but you know, I actually right, have a theory the on pictures. that. I have a theory on that. Yeah, even Ashen Shasan posted his uh, wands and mm-hmm. people start posting their wands, which is always, it's great. It's wonderful. That's a, that, that group and uh, two other groups is the re- only reason I have a Facebook account. Um, and uh, 
I do so well during Mercury retrogrades. Like I become happy. I become ultra super uh, productive during retrograde Mercury retrograde. And you know, my mom's a fifty year old fifty year professional astrologer. She's seventy three or seventy four now. Um, I should know that. Um, but but <laughs> she helped me understand that uh, you know, based on the the placement on my mercury and mars and conjunctions and some other things it makes sense she says so it's like well if if during mercury retrograde i be my personality becomes optimized i feel it the channel clearer than ever i'm just going to go with that i'm not going to like pretend like i'm having a rough time and not do magic certain magic things because uh, i know it's a breach with tradition but it's like you know I also trust in God and trust in my own mm-hmm. higher self. And, and, you know, when in doubt, there's always a little, uh, you know, LRH or Mercury that can buffer things, in my opinion, as a, as a GDite. Um, but, uh, yeah, so uh, that's a fucking fabulous that uh, you got such great quotes from uh, such reputable scholars in this area. I'm absolutely stoked. To, I'm uh, very, very to, grateful. Uh, I'm very to, grateful to, to get the copy of the book, and who knows, maybe if uh, my listeners are gracious enough with their donations, I might get one of those fine editions. We shall see. <laughs> I don't mind twisting the arms of my uh, my listeners, or better yet, putting them in an onikudaki. <laughs> yata, <Right>. yata, <laughs> anata awa onikudaki des. No, anata awa Scott's dis. Grimoire of Witchcraft Des. Is that right? Desu. Well, then you're telling me that I am Scott's oh. Grimoire of Witchcraft. Watashiwa Scott's Grimoire Des. If you want to say, well, then you're saying you are Scott's oh. Grimoire of Witchcraft. Okay. So, so, Clearly, uh, I don't speak uh, Japanese. I just what had is to throw it you're trying to say? I just had to throw out some Japanese there because people complain whenever I try to speak <laughs> Japanese. They really, they say, don't, they, they, they get upset and you know, that's really why I have this podcast is to get people's panties well, in a twist. If if you want to say that uh, you want a copy of this book, <laughs> you could just say you could just say uh, I, I really want this book. Yeah, All if right. you want to speak formally, uh, and, and if you're from if you're from Kansai, you don't say "hontoni," you say "hummani." No, I'm from Osaka in another way. <laughs> um, this does move us on to the the third and final stage of our episode, and and Ash right. and Shasan is a great intro into it um, <laughs> uh, because um, here's the question: y- You and he are both are uh, master ninjas. You both uh, are. <laughs> are hardcore ninjas and uh <laughs> i remember when we met you and i 20 plus years ago and you know i was i was there down in la uh doing doing my thing and you were out in the grass doing backflips and rolls and next thing <laughs> i know uh you were you backflipping over me and teaching me techniques because i was of course uh you know I, i'm an eternal beginner in bujinkan i feel like and that's okay but uh, you, you, uh, Ashen Shastan, of course, went to Japan, got his uh, fifth dan with Hatsumi, and you did too. I did. That's tell us about that. Uh, a lot of lot of ninjutsu fans listening to this podcast. I've had comments actually from people like, "Hey, you know, can you put markers so I can just hear the ninjutsu stuff?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, that's odd, but let's roll with it." Well, um, 
Well, I mean, my my Godan Chicken, my fifth degree black belt test was, you know, as so many others, uh, I took mine at the Hombu Dojo. Uh, well, the old Hombu, they've built a new one, as you may have heard. Uh, but the old Hombu Dojo, um, yeah, I prefer doing it there as opposed to the Tokyo Budokan, uh, where uh, Hatsumi Sensei also uh, gives lessons, or at least used to. I'm not sure if he still does that. Um, but I saw so I, I got mine in a super crowded Hombu Dojo. I was so packed, you, you could barely do any training. Uh, and um, I actually think the person, because Hatsumi Sensei always tries to find someone uh, you know or someone who knows you, uh, a Shihan who knows you to do your test. Oh, really? Uh, but uh, since I was there by myself, how about you just quickly describe what the test is for those who are don't know? Because it's a well, fabulous, remarkable right. test. Well, the Godan Shiken is uh, you sit in uh, Seiza, you sit in Seiza no Kamae, uh, which is you know just sitting down on your knees, uh, traditional Japanese seated posture, and you close your eyes and you're supposed to just relax, and then you will have a Shihan, uh, uh, a senior instructor, as we would say. Uh, who will then grab, nowadays they use a shinai. Uh, sometimes they will use a bokto, uh, a wooden sword, but they will usually use a shinai, which is the bamboo sword used in kendo. Uh, probably because it's a bit more merciful because there have been a lot of people who don't move properly. I've <laughs> so seen, I've seen videos of, of Hatsumi using a bokudo and whacking people when they failed the tests, you know, and damn, that's got to hurt. With it. It, oh, absolutely. Even just the shinai is going to hurt. Oh, yeah. It, it makes a lot more noise than the actual uh, power of the impact. Well, it hits you powerfully, but it doesn't hurt as much as it sounds it would. And that's why it's it's usually used nowadays. But it, don't get me wrong, it'll still hurt getting hit with that thing. Um, but yeah, and then that shihang will move up behind you and will raise the shihang above your head. And then whenever... He's ready, doesn't matter if you're ready or not. Whenever he's ready, he will emulate a killing intent, what in Japanese is called a saki. That's why it's called uh, the test of saki jutsu. Saki jutsu means the art of killing intent. And so basically, he will create an artificial um, output, if you will, of hey, wanting to actually kill you, actually take your life. Yeah. Even though he knows consciously he's just standing with with uh, Shimai in his hands, but he's going to create that uh, actual mental output of you're going to die. And, mm. and I, I'm just going to, I'm going to split your skull open, basically. Uh, well, without it. way to put it, but, but since the idea I always thought was, you know, because, uh, you know, I always thought about it in sort of psychical terms when I was starting out in ninjutsu, you know, like if, if, if you don't have that killing intent out, what is there to sense? It's like it right. doesn't trigger the same response because you're facing away from for someone who's going to hit you at their whim and you have to magically just know when to roll away right before, not too early right. and not too late, the right. right exact moment. And my teacher, uh, uh, my, my first Shihan, he said it's actually not that hard. We could even practice it in class if we wanted mm -hmm. because there is a natural sense. Like you're not trying to get lucky. You're trying to demonstrate an extreme level of sensitivity to the killing intent, right. correct? Yeah. Exactly. So, you want that on the street, you want that in your life. When you sense that killing, and I've felt it, especially as a as a Celtic bar musician, often I felt that shift, and all of a sudden, mm -hmm. you know, guys from behind the bar are leaping across. They feel it too. 
They'll, they'll they right. jump almost before the action happens, and next thing you know, like a fight's being broken up, and it happens right. on a dime. And it right, it's a good sense to have. It is, and it's something you you will see a lot of uh, uh, experienced police officers and people in the military as well tend to develop uh, that they, they they just start feeling something is off when something is yeah. about to happen. Uh, obviously, part of it is being able to read signs and so on, but a lot of it uh, also is because of constantly being surrounded with uh, those circumstances, it tends to make you a bit more attuned to how things feel. You know, the same thing is as uh, just uh, when people describe that sensation of someone watching them and then they turn around and they see there's actually someone standing there staring at them. Uh, it's it's similar to that, but it's, it's a more specific uh, thing in this case where it is that intent to actually lethally harm you, right? Uh, and that's what you're supposed to pick up on and then roll out of the way. So it's not just being able to sense it. It's also, it's a combination of that and then having proper Thai hinges or... Um, bodily movement skills or bodily movement techniques as we call it which would be rolling out of the way uh, properly so you don't actually get whacked it's not enough to just do like this you're going to get hit in the, in the back of the neck or move to the side you're going to get whacked in the shoulder so you need to actually roll out of the way so it needs to be a, a, a proper combination of these two uh, and that's how you pass your fifth degree black belt test um, there there have been cases where people pick up on not necessarily killing intent but they pick up on presence. Mm. And uh, it seems that sometimes Hatsumi Sensei, uh, he chooses differently. If he, like, if he feels that the person who moved there with just the right timing, now nah, that was just pure luck because he was kind of twitchy and he just happened to get it right. No, no. Then he goes, want some more, please. And then, you know, they have to do it again. Uh, but sometimes people will sit there completely still and they're not moving a muscle. And the person is not hitting it, but he's just stepping up behind you and he's about to put the sword on the top of your head and the person rolls out of the way. There's obviously no killing intent, but they sense there's something yeah. wrong here and they move out of the way. And then sometimes he will pass them based on that, even though it was not the, the actual sake, but because they were sufficiently sensitive, but still sufficiently calm to just sit there. But if people are twitchy, he will put it down to no, no, no. It's yeah. just because he got lucky yeah. because he was waiting for something. He was just waiting for the right timing. But this other guy was sitting still for like half a minute, not moving a muscle. And then right before the sword gets put on his head, before the test is about to start, he moves perfectly out of the way. And then he will still pass them based off of that. Uh, it's kind of rare, but he will do it. I've seen him do it uh, a couple of times. Yeah, well, we trust in Hatsumi to to know. Well, that's the thing. You you <laughs> would been doing him it. to tell you if you yeah. need to do it again, or yeah. if it's like no, 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 that 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 was good enough. I saw uh, something that definitely showed this person is is absolutely fifth degree black belt or higher. So he yeah. passes or she passes, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, so that that's basically what that test is is all about. So it's it's a. Uh, a famous or infamous, if you will, test in, in the Bujinkan, uh, this uh, Saki Jutsu test. Yeah, I, I talked with uh, with uh, Ash and Shasan also about Kujikiri a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, did you, uh, have you had any experience with that? Because it, it's, it's one of those things that you can actually become quite experienced in ninjutsu, I think, and actually not encounter that much. And then there's, of course, uh, there's even here in, 
British Columbia, there's been some ninjutsu teachers who do entire seminars and courses and retreats focusing on Kujikiri. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fascinating to me because of what it is. And I'm just curious if you have any knowledge on that. Well, I've actually done uh, a fair bit of study of Kuji no Ho, or the method of Kuji, or the method of the nine characters, where people usually say nine syllables, but it can also be interpreted as nine characters, because it's the ji as in kanji, the Chinese character, mm. you know, the, the more elaborate characters in the Japanese language, but they're adopted from Chinese, hence mm. Chinese character. But it's that same kanji, ji, which means character. So Kuji technically means uh, nine characters, and... Uh, Ho means method. So Kuji no Ho means the method of Kuji or the Kuji method. Uh, and I, I was very fascinated with that, uh, obviously because of my interest in uh, esotericism, right? Uh, so I did a lot of study on that. Now, I was actually fortunate enough to, to learn some stuff in Japan from some of the old Japanese shihan. Uh, there were some preparatory techniques that had to do with uh, chakra work and stuff like that, actually. Uh, something called hinokokyu, which means fire breathing, uh, that uh, Nakadai Sensei used to teach. And uh, he said that's actually some preliminary training uh, for that of working with Kujinoho. Uh, and this was something I found out that there are various other uh, systems of this, uh, this practice that in, in uh, Japanese uh, Mikyo, as it's called, uh, like it's this... Uh, Buddhist uh, esoteric doctrine, right? You have different uh, different schools of it, uh, different styles. You have Tendai Mikyo, Shingon Mikyo, and that kind of stuff. But it's that thing that we call Mikyo. It's these Buddhist esoteric uh, disciplines where they do all this stuff with hand seals and then it, <laughs> sit there. And it's basically a, a practice. A lot of people identify it as as Eastern magic. Uh, but it's basically a practice that is used for spiritual development. But some of the side effects are different um, paranormal phenomena, if you will. Like uh, one thing is being able to heal yourself or heal someone else. And another one is being able to achieve uh, like a, 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 a cosmic intelligence and, and you know, receive answers from the universe. And, and others are about uh, being able to manipulate someone else uh, purely um, mentally, like a form of, of telepathic assault, if you will, and that kind of stuff. Those are some of the, the quote-unquote side effects of, of doing this work, but it is mainly for purposes of spiritual development. Um and I found out that there are various of these uh, uh, like Kundalini and chakra activation type practices that tie into that because uh, this has to do with, you know, the old esoteric principles of, of Buddhism uh, where you have uh, these yogic teachings, et cetera, et cetera, that incorporate all of these esoteric elements, uh, you know, uh, doing uh, poses and postures and so on in, in yoga to manipulate how the flow of the energy uh, moves through the body is one thing. And then using these hand gestures known as uh, mudras, right, uh, in Sanskrit, it's uh, what's known as ketsui in Japanese. Yeah. Uh, it, it's I can, another way of, of manipulating the flow of energy. Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> that one took me a while as a kid because you know. You remember what I, it's called? No, no, I don't. Sadly, that one is pull. Oh, I need to. I want to get back into it. I mean, when I came back to Canada from California to, to I guess a year ago, 
you know, uh, they were doing ninjutsu classes, but then it got shut down before I could even attend one. And we're not allowed to do it still. So, yeah, hopefully we'll get back to that. Because it's a good gang of, of, of guys here that, uh, you know, they're nice. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was 10, I had been meditating twice a day since I was seven. So, so a long time. And then I saw American Ninja. <laughs> and guess what I started doing while I was meditating? Oh, you would, of course, sit there doing ham seals, right? And, you know, <laughs> after three years of, of meditating a lot, even as a child, you know, adding those in uh, was very interesting. Um, but I didn't know what to do with them, and it didn't really seem like I was activating right. anything new. It just made it more interesting to me. And, of course, I slowly did move away, away from transcendental meditation entirely and right. the whole Maharishi thing. Um, I, I got had got a bad taste in my mouth as soon as I found out that Maharishi, my parents told me Maharishi considers, you know, gays to be unnatural. And I was like, what the fuck? I mean, come on. Cause you know, cause I was hearing that from my Christian family in, in Missouri, you know, like they were, they were paddling us cause, cause of playing Dungeons and Dragons and like all this, I was just had enough of all that shit. You know, it didn't like, you know, it didn't affect me personally because I was, I'm not gay, but but it just, it outraged me even at that young age. You know what I mean? And I was like, I can't do with, deal with that stuff anymore. Um, just, just done with it. <laughs> um, Understandably. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited. I did only see any sort of kujikiri or magic demonstrated once in ninjutsu training. One teacher I had um, had done a, was training a lot under our, our sort of uh, Takasagi Dojo uh, Shihan, uh, Phil, Phil Lagar sensei. Um, you know, he's that guy who like trained the CIA in Bujinkan, like that dude. And one of my teachers had learned some of this stuff from him and demonstrated some like, it seemed like meridian line cutting stuff to delete energy while in grappling positions. It was very strange. Um, and uh, again, I've just, yeah, it's, it's, it's something I hope to learn more about in the future from uh, right. as, as, as the world opens up and I can get back to it. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, a, yeah, it is a very, very interesting area. Absolutely. Ninjutsu has brought so much to my life. Like I actually, like, you know, I got my roommate Martin into it when when I was eighteen and, and living at Temple Tehuti, uh, mm-hmm. going to college. And I I couldn't do ninjutsu before eighteen; they wouldn't let me. So as soon as I turned eighteen, boom, I was out there at the base of a mountain, three hours, three nights a week on the cement, learning dive rolls and 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 uh, you know gogio. Um, we were a gogio, very centered on gogio. Like we did like 30 minutes of that at the beginning of every class, just all the, going through all the gogio, which I really love that because it's so elemental. It's so five right. elemental base, like from earth up to spirit and, uh, oh, the best times. And, you know, Martin, I told my roommate Martin that he, I was doing, he was like, holy shit, can I come? So I would drive him with me and we just, <laughs> we got upset. We would train at a gazebo on the cement on at, at Crab Beach or Shell Beach every morning, 7 a.m. Well, not every morning, but sometimes a lot. Just jog up from the temple, past the strip club, down over the bridge to the, this, little, <laughs> this little thing. We would just go to town on each other, you know. We would fight. Right. You know, we would fight. Right. And it was uh, a beautiful time in my life. So, so that's yeah. what good old training was like too. Um, actually, when you mentioned that thing about Gogyo, uh, it, it reminds me of when you you had the conversation with uh, uh, with Ashin Shasan uh, about exactly that that. Uh, yeah, that, that interview give you is going to get that interview is going to get a few more <laughs> listens after this podcast. <laughs> it most likely will. Yeah. Um, I apologize, people, for being so nervous that I got stoned before the interview, and by the end, I was pretty much out of it. So. Uh, <laughs> 
Forgive me. I'm, a, I'm not, it, it I'm not, don't consider interview. myself good at podcasting at all. I just it enjoy it. It was still a good interview. It was still Thank a really you. good interview. I greatly enjoyed it. I've listened to it twice. Um, oh, fuck. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I, I, I want to give you uh, something that uh, you might appreciate, both from a, a Bujinkang perspective as well as from the perspective of an occultist. That's the whole Gogyo thing, because apparently it seems like your teacher used to call it Gogyo. But yeah. um, remember the thing that uh, Ashin Chasan mentioned that they usually call it Sanshin no Kata, because that's yeah. technically what it's called in the Densho, in the, the written transmissions, in, in the scrolls. They're not always in the form of scrolls. Some old Japanese texts are in the form of old Japanese books. Some of them are in scrolls, but we call them Densho. Densho means written transmission, right? And uh, in that, it's called Sanshin no Kata, which means the three hearts form. Uh, or the three spirits form, depending on how you read that kanji uh, that usually translates as, as heart. But uh, technically, they are actually not the gogyo. They are actually the godai. And here's the thing. The gogyo and the godai are not the same thing. There are five elements, aye, but they're two different sets. Uh, in Sanshin no Kata, you use the godai, which is chi, sui, ka, fu, ku. So earth, chi, earth, sui, water, ka, fire, fu, wind or air, and ku, void or emptiness, right? Those are the forms you do when you do the sanshin no kata. But that's the godai, which means the five great. The gogyo are different. The gogyo are do, which is still chi. It's still also earth, but it's more in the sense of soil, right? So do, sui, Water, ka, fire, moku, wood, and king, metal or gold, but it's also used uh, to to describe metal. So those are the gogyo. But if you think back to doing the sanshin no kata, there is nothing called uh, moku no kata, like a wooden kata or, or kin no kata. It's fu no kata, the air pattern, and ku no kata, the void pattern or emptiness pattern. So that's the difference between those two uh, two sets of elements, the godai and the gogyo. Chi sui ka fuku and chi or do sui ka moku king. Wow. Yeah. Our teacher uh, didn't thank you. Don't, do, do, domo, domo. Oh, um, no, no, just, just in case yeah. you found it interesting. Uh, oh, I do, a, I do. From a esoteric perspective and from a Bujinkan perspective. Yeah. There's actually a difference between those two. So when you speak of the esoteric element that you find in the Bujinkan, such as... Kujin and Kujikiri, they talk about the Godai, that one, the Chisui Kafu Ku. But when it then talks about the uh, Doton no Jutsu, for example, uh, it's uh, the, the Tonpo or Ton no Jutsu escape methods or escape techniques. Then they will use the Gogyo because then they use Do, uh, earth or soil, and Sui, water, Ka, fire, Moku, wood, and King, metal for escape techniques. So, you know, like using metal uh, to facilitate an escape, it would be stuff like throwing makibishi on the ground as you're running away and people step on them when they're chasing you down. And moku, uh, mokuton no jutsu is using wood to facilitate an escape. So stuff like uh, hiding in bushes, 
until you can get out of there. You know, they, they give up looking for you. Or we did lots of that stuff like that. Right. We would do nights, uh, just stealth nights where we're in the rain at the foot of gross mountain. And so it's like lush temperate rainforest. Right. And it's just trees and underbrush and there'd be a place structure. My teacher would put one person on the place structure and their job was just to look around, not move, just sit where they are on the place structure. And under the place structure was a bunch of gravel and then an open field all around lined by trees and the person had a mm-hmm. flashlight so if they saw you they would shine the flashlight on you if they saw you period you were out and we crawled all the way through the underbrush had to get through the forest moving silently and somehow get across the grass this open area across the gravel without the person seeing us and touch them on the back and we would do that over a period of like three hours in the rain you know full gear and we it was doable like you were, we learned how to lie flat on grass and where the mm-hmm. shadows would hide us and where they wouldn't. We also learned amazing things like, wow, black is actually not the best color because you stand out no, even in a not. shadow, whereas if you wear red, you sink right mm-hmm. in. And then moving across gravel in an open area without being heard or seen, that was a treat in the rain. Mm-hmm. But, but we learned. And, you know, if people like Martin were there with me, we did it. We did that stuff. And one of my other friends from old Tahuti days just uh, gave me all her ninjutsu books. So I brought, like... I've got, I'm finally going to learn the terms because our teacher just didn't want us to, didn't want us to bother learning the terms. He said, you can learn all the Japanese terms before your Shidoshi test, the black belt test or whatever, learn them all before that. He also didn't, we didn't stretch. He's like, you can stretch at home. You can stretch before class. You're here to learn technique. Right. Mm-hmm. And I like that, you know, because I, I had a long history of many years in Taekwondo classes in different traditions where it felt like most of the class was just an exercise class where we're just like right. running around doing push ups. Like, I'm paying a lot of money for this, <laughs> you know. Right. And uh, if, when, then when people want to fight me, I'm going to what, do a push up? <laughs> now, my, my first teacher uh, back in Denmark, uh, he was also along those lines where. Uh, he was like, yeah, but the, the, the terminology and so on. Oh, yeah, that's, a, I'm, that's I'm, an old I'm class. very excited to read this Stick Fighting Techniques of Self-Defense by Hatsumi and Quentin Chambers. Classic. That's where yeah. some of the, the, the old classical techniques were the humble uh, yeah. depicted. Very cool stuff indeed. Yeah, using wood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, using... I remember that one. That was one of the first techniques I learned with the humble. The ability to use hanbo or, or any tool to, to brace someone's arm and the way to apply pressure in certain spots to break mm-hmm. free has actually gotten me out of a few real-life grappled situations where I, someone, you know, some drunk asshole was trying to, like, you know, hug me too much or something because he liked my performance. It happens, right? And, you just like, <laughs> and then you try and get away and they're drunk, so they get aggressive and you're like, you know, you just press your pint glass into the right part of their forearm and they're like, ow, and you... You boot it. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, we trained with salt shakers and all kinds of, like, we did whole classes on just using everyday things. How would you fight mm-hmm. if you were sitting in a diner and the person right. across from you attacked you, right? Like, you know, throw the glass in there, you smash it, slit their throat. <laughs> right. right. I mean, this is why ninjutsu is not in the Olympics, right? There's no, there's no competition for eye gouging. <laughs> no, 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 there, there really isn't. Uh, it's uh, less of... How that would, how that would go. <laughs> I don't see and so, well. let's. Um, uh, yeah, we could talk ninjutsu forever, and we'll talk about it more. But you actually don't do practice ninjutsu anymore. You've moved on, and you went to Brazil, which is where you <laughs> found yourself uh, a lovely, lovely wife, um, and uh, learned Portuguese and uh, studied not Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but mm. capoeira. That's right. Which makes sense because you are you're a dexterous 
flippy motherfucker. <laughs> I mean, I remember standing outside of Morningstar Research Center in LA. We're on the grass. You're showing me some holds, and you did put me in this one hold, and you're like, see, I can't get out. And you tried everything, and I, I really resisted, and you couldn't get out. And you said, unless I do this, and you did a fucking flip over my head, bringing me down onto my back. And I, I to this day, it was it's one of the best experiences of my life. Thank you. Thank you for that. that literally, it was like my life became a movie for a second. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, shit, man, this guy's next level. I love it. And uh, of course, yeah, you know, we lost touch and found yeah, each other again right. on Facebook. But yeah, fortunately, um, yeah, fortunately I because we didn't know each other's real names uh, and all of that stuff. And and that was 2002. And then, and then how could how could you find someone again after that? There was literally no way. Um, right. and then, and so, yeah, it's been a blessing having you back in my life. Yeah. Same here. Absolutely. Yeah, man. No, uh, it was nice to be able to reconnect again. I was really happy that we were able to find each other on Facebook. Oh. Hey, it's been a long time. I saw Lenny. I was like, that, 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 I knew that I was like, holy shit. And yeah, fucking a, yeah. I'm so glad I made a Facebook account with my old GD motto <laughs> playing for all to see. Um, it's uh, it's been a, an adventure, shall we say? But hey, it's COVID and we're still in lockdown after two years, so it's not like there's been much else to do. Um, right, right. <laughs> I'm having a little birthday party tomorrow with a friend who's in an AA OTO magician and a friend who's in uh, one of the many GD orders, and is my oldest friend, and they happen to be a drummer and a bassist. So we have a drum kit at friends' house. We're gonna. I'll play nice. guitar, they'll play bass, we'll play drum, and that'll be my wee little birthday party in lockdown. Um, that sounds cool. You know, and uh, good fun. Yeah, yeah, I'll take some pictures, send you, or maybe sing a song for you. Um, oh, yes, please. Tell, tell me about Capoeira, because uh, we have a very famous Capoeira school here in Vancouver, and I've watched the teacher there yes, perform. Yes, you do. trained some of my, yeah, Axe Capoeira. I, I mean, that's, I've walked by that, bus by that. I lived I mean. down the I lived down the street from that for years. I mean, I've, yeah, I've watched them perform at, in city mm-hmm. center and they do amazing performances. And I've had many friends study there for years until their joints gave out and they had to stop and became alcoholics. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> it's actually true. <laughs> I'm thinking about one guy <laughs> anyway. Um, but you, uh, yeah. So you, you, how, did, how, what was it like going from ninjutsu into capoeira, especially in Brazil? Well, see, well, that's the thing. Uh, I'll have to, to make a few minor adjustments. To Did you just throw uh, caution to the wind and move to Brazil? No, 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 no. It wasn't like that. Um, uh, first of all, when I moved from, from <laughs> well, I didn't really move from Bujinkang Budo into, yeah, I'm sorry, I should probably clarify. Uh, I know a lot of people tend to still refer to Bujinkang Budo as ninjutsu. I personally don't. And I haven't done that in many years, uh, but that's because, as you know, I'm I'm a massive history geek, mm. and my main passion when I got into Bujinkan Budo was ninjutsu or shinobi no jutsu, as it technically used to be called uh, before it was eventually pronounced ninjutsu. It's the same as the word ninja is sort of a more modern reading of those two kanji. It used to be pronounced shinobi no mono, and just for short, shinobi. Um, shinobi was actually used more. Yeah, in Vancouver we use we use Nimple. Yeah, we we right, often right. use Nimple a lot here. But but you see the thing is, um, but we use all the I, names. Everyone here I know uses all the names. They change the names on the posters. One one year it'll be Taijutsu, one year it'll be, be Nimpo, one year it'll be Takasagi, Takasagi Bujinkan. Like 
they it's 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 that's why it's ninja because they literally don't care about how it's called because that's not what's really going on the presentation <laughs> is all illusion right, right like right. coup like coup don't watch the hand while i kick you in the balls <laughs> right that's exactly the point of that hand it's it's literally exactly the point of the yes. technique yeah exactly yeah <laughs> No, but the, the reason why I stopped referring to it as ninjutsu is because I found it a, a bit of a, a misnomer. Because while Bujinkan Gudo does contain uh, three different ninjutsu ryuha, uh, nowadays, very unfortunately, very, very, very little actual shinobi no jutsu is being taught in the Bujinkan. It's not like in the old days. Uh, my teacher back in the day used to teach us a buttload of that stuff. It was the same for us learning stealth uh, techniques and, and and like concealment tactics and all this stuff when we got to practice all of these things, right? All of this classical shinobi no jutsu stuff, this covert warfare stuff, right? Uh, but obviously the, the focus became mainly the kobujutsu aspect, the, the traditional old Japanese martial arts uh, the same stuff that uh, um, the generic warriors back then would learn, like Jiu-Taijutsu techniques, Dakin-Taijutsu techniques, Jiu-Jutsu techniques, Kopo-Jutsu techniques, uh, Koshi-Jutsu or Sto-Jutsu, as it was also called back in the day. And that kind of stuff, right? And then all of the different weapons techniques, Ken-Jutsu, Shuriken-Jutsu, Bo-Jutsu, Sol-Jutsu, and so on, right? Um, but what was classified as Ninjutsu or Shinobi no Jutsu was much more specific. It was all of this covert warfare. So it was all this about infiltration tactics and strategies and escape techniques and, and, and sabotage techniques and, and uh, like strategies and tactics for arson and uh, all this guerrilla warfare stuff and how you best sneak in without anyone knowing you're there, getting the information or destroying the enemy compound from inside or causing enough mayhem to be able to have the uh, you know your allies on the outside bust in and then kill everybody right and no one will ever know you're there until all hell breaks loose or if you're just gathering information uh, uh, you know perfect mission scenario no one ever knows anyone was there ever right uh, and unfortunately a lot of that stuff is not being taught in the Bujinkan anymore and so because of that I thought it was a misnomer labeling it ninjutsu and it was very much a thing a lot of dojos would still do to sort of like uh, market it if you will yeah um, well there's a lot of in the states even there's courses where you like get your black belt in one year in ninjutsu and they are actual like shihans who are teaching it they were you know often pass their tests with hatsumi but it's right. like a bunch of dvds or video course and then a black belt 12 months later right just, right the, there's there's too much of that stuff nowadays, and and too many people, unfortunately, this is not to speak ill of the Bujinkan or anyone in it. No, they're doing uh, this in universities with PhDs, man. Right, right, right. It's yeah. just it, it's just the thing where when people take something and try to make it into something, it's not uh, uh, just for the sake of of making money or or uh, making it a cool thing. And, and and there's too much of that stuff nowadays where people aren't just focusing on, like the good old saying, shut up and train, right? Uh, it, it's just, it's not there anymore for a lot of people. And that's the sad part. That was actually the reason why I stopped training. Don't get me wrong, I trained with some fantastic uh, Shihan over in Japan, both uh, Nakadai Sensei, I love the guy to death, and he's a fantastic yeah. teacher. Yoshida Sensei was a fantastic teacher. Uh, and also Sakaguchi Sensei and Mitsuhashi Sensei in Osaka, also fantastic teachers. Uh, but it's just the whole thing started to, it became too much of a, 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 
I don't know if tourist trap is the right thing to say, but there was just too much of that and too much hoopla and and things, uh, 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 too many egos getting involved and things starting to become messy and it's falling apart. And, and it seems like even Hatsumi Sensei is kind of sort of just washing his hands off of it. It's not to say anything bad about him, but it just looks like uh, he... The way he's sort of distributing everything now, it seems like he's kind of just, yeah, okay, just let let people just do their thing because I'm done. Uh, he, and, and he he is done. He 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 not only kept the the tradition alive from his teacher Takamatsu, right? Takamatsu, right? Claw hands, man, like that dude. Mm-hmm. Is, the legends are crazy, but he Takamatsu Hatsumi kept cool. it alive. Yeah, Ta- Hatsumi's kept it alive. He's made it so big, it's never going away. So, right. Yeah. But unfortunately, a lot of people have taken it in a lot of directions that it, it shouldn't have gone in, in my humble opinion. And that's yeah. one of the reasons why I decided, OK, I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore because I, I used to love the old school training and, and uh, I still love that to death. Uh, granted, my main passion within the Bujinkang is still the ninjutsu aspect, which was what I really missed, which was why I started studying a lot of the old material myself. I started uh, uh, tracking down uh, uh, hand reproduced copies of old ninjutsu texts. Of course, you did. <laughs> and, and I actually got a hold of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I have copies of, oh the, of the Shou Ninki and uh, Shinobi Hideng and Do Danshu and, and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, a very good friend of mine in Japan, uh, Yuta, uh, he and I are both massive ninjutsu, like historical ninjutsu fanatics. And mm. we have done nothing but research the crap out of it. <laughs> Hey, maybe you think and, he'd ever maybe do a like a, we could do a roundtable podcast and maybe he'd oh, come he on and, and and we can get Ash and Shasan on and have like that. three of you guys talking and I'll just you learn know, and listen. He actually works uh, with uh, ninjutsu history now at a university in, oh, wow. in Iga and he lives in Iga. Uh, he lives in uh, the old Iga no Kuni. He lives in a small village called Furuyama in uh, Mie Prefecture. In he probably has some very Iga no Kuni. Probably have some very good onigiri uh, there. Uh, oh yeah, well you get good onigiri all over the place. Uh, but uh, uh, I'm I'm sure he he would love to talk about it because he just really wanted his dream was to get to work with ninjutsu history professionally, and he actually does that now. He works uh, for the university. Uh, wow, and, so so uh, uh, I'm sure he would love to do it. Yeah, if we could do it. like the four of us would get get Brian on board. I'm sure the uh, I'm sure he could answer so many questions and. It wouldn't really be a magical podcast, but it'd be an awesome podcast. Oh, I think so too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it would have to be uh, like in a parenthesis: ninjutsu magic without fears. <laughs> ninjutsu without ninjas without fears. I don't right. know. We'll come up with. I'll make a special graphic. <laughs> if you talk to your guy, we'll make it. And, and Brian comes on. We'll make a special topic. I'll make a special graphic just for it, and we'll have fun with it. That would be amazing. That would like right, maybe, well, maybe we can do that yeah. in the spring, early spring that, or something. That would be very cool. That'd be That'd awesome. Be very cool. I'll talk to Yuta and, and see if we can't set something up. Yeah, uh, I'm sure he would love uh, to do it. I won't talk to Ashton Shasan. I'll leave the listeners to go and bother him. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just joking. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, no, I'm always. So, I, I just uh, people. People. I'm surprised sometimes by how many people still actually listen to this. Like you know, I you know, I like you know how I've covered like a lot of academics essays, like Dr. Hanagroff's mm-hmm. essays. Yesterday, I found out he knows all about this podcast. Oh wow! And apparently, there's an ongoing joke cool. amongst the academics that 
that because of what the, the, that I am Frater, Frater RC has, who, who has returned early just to comment on their papers. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. I love it. I hope they know any of them listening back. I, I do it because I really believe in their work. I want people to pursue that education and know that it's out there. And I want them to not be afraid to read academic research because it's very mm-hmm. fascinating, informative, uh, even if you aren't a history buff like you or I. Um, just, um, yeah, so I try to make yeah, that still show that to, this to research read. is accessible. Um, I mean, like, like think about Dr. Sophie Page's work on the, the, the grimoires in the monasteries. Uh, what we learned from that about how the grimoires were actually used to, to mm-hmm. just as a starting point rather than the end point is right. all kinds of, was, you know, revolutionary. I mean, it was sort of already known, but, you know, she did a real study on it and that sort of stuff right, is, right. Beyond valuable to to us who practice those spiritualities, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it does surprise me sometimes who all listens to this. Um, for example, I just got an email from a, a New York publicist for Damien Eccles. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You know, requesting me to stop sending Damien so many nudes. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's what it was all about. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, Capoeira. Yeah, right. Sorry. Uh, yeah, it was a bit of a, a side quest there. Uh, no, but um, so that was the whole reason why I, I sort of stopped with Bujinkang, right? But Capoeira, yeah. I technically didn't move into from Bujinkang Budo. Okay. I'd done Bujinkang Budo for about 20 years by the time I stopped, right? Um I, I haven't uh, like left it per se. I haven't sent in an official letter saying I resigned from the Bridging Gang or anything. Uh, of course not. Uh, I, I would never do that because I, I'm still very, I still have many, many fond memories of it. And, and I'm still very, uh, very honored of all the things I got to experience in my time in the Bridging Gang and everything. So that, that, that'll never change. Um, but no, Capoeira, I actually, uh, I started training in the Bridging Gang when I was 15. And I actually discovered Capoeira when I was 16. I discovered it through uh, a movie called Only the Strong. Now you'll have a lot of people who know Capoeira listening to this going, yeah, 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 exactly, just like me. A lot of people will be able to nod in recognition of that. Oh, yeah, Only the Strong. It's not the greatest movie in the world, but it was awesome back then when you did not know what Capoeira was until you watched that movie. And I actually thought it, it wasn't a real martial art at that time because I'd never heard of it before. So I thought it was just something they made up for the sake of the movie. And I found out, oh, my God, this stuff is is real. How awesome is that? And so I wanted to get into that alongside Bujinkang Budo. But unfortunately, uh, it turns out that back then in the mid 90s in Wee Denmark, there was not a whole lot of capoeira going on. There were like two uh, academies or something in Denmark, and both of them were insanely far away. And so, you know, uh, I could just forget about that. So instead, what did I do? I just kept watching Only the Strong, and I tried to copy everything they did in the movie. So I taught myself how to do flips and kicks and all this stuff from that movie. Uh, so that was how I got started with Capoeira, actually. And then eventually oh. I, I found books, uh, you know, uh, found titles of books, and then I had the, the public library order them home uh, for me so I could read those and learn a bit about, you know, genuine Capoeira, not just from this movie. Um but ironically, it was not until many, many, many years later, I was able to actually become an official student of an actual 
uh, grupo de capoeira, as we call it, a capoeira group. Right? It's kind of like, a, as we call Ryuha in Japanese, you know, like a school, right? It's the same in capoeira, but there it's called groups because it's a group that has its own name and it practices capoeira, but it sort of has its own style of it. I mean, all of it's capoeira, but each one has kind of its own style, just like karate. It's all karate, but there are different styles. There's shotokan karate, kyokushin karate, gojuryu karate, and so on, right? So the same with capoeira. And it wasn't until many, many years later, I finally decided, no, enough is enough. I'm, I'm going to do this thing. And I finally became a student of Grupo Asha Capoeira, the same Capoeira group you have in Vancouver. Amazing. It's actually the headquarters, uh, in spite of the founder, Master Bahon, being from Recife in Brazil. Yeah. He lived in Canada back then, and he wanted to spread out uh, Capoeira. He wanted to spread Capoeira. And that's why he founded Grupo Asha Capoeira and created its base in Vancouver. And still to this day, even though Master Bahon doesn't live in Vancouver anymore, he moved back to Recife. His sons yeah. still live in Vancouver, and they're the ones running it. And so, so that whenever I've seen is still yeah, because whenever I've seen them perform downtown, which is many times, I was always like, these guys are really, really good. Like, they're I was always like, is everyone this good? Uh, <laughs> because it is very impressive. But they are all of the they, people of their level. They, they are it, it makes sense to that they're actually famous guys in the in the in the in the in the, in the practice. So. Yeah, well, I guess you you need to visit Vancouver then one day. I would love to. I would love yeah. to. I've only ever been to Toronto, so yeah. um, and that was actually yeah. It's interesting. We should talk about Grupo Asha Capoeira and then it being based out of Vancouver uh, because my teacher right down the street Grupo Asha Capoeira, my first teacher there, uh, Mestrando Paraíba, is also from Brazil, but he lives in Toronto. So I actually became a student of Asha Capoeira, Toronto. Wow. And, and he's also a, a famous teacher in that group. Unfortunately, he has now, uh, a couple of years ago, he decided to leave the group. Uh, we won't get into all the politics behind it, but there were some disagreements and some stuff. And so he eventually decided that he was going to leave the group. He loves all the years he spent. And he was born and bred uh, Asia Capoeira, pretty much, but he decided to leave it, and then he decided to start his own thing. Uh, so he has his own group uh, now in in Toronto. Uh, many of the same students, because they obviously chose to stay with their teacher, but he has a group now called uh, uh, Capoeira Bamba in, oh. in Toronto. So still the same place, and like I said, uh, many of the, the old students are, are still the same. But but yeah, he was my first teacher. I uh, I decided to stay in the group not because I. Well, I really wanted to stay with my teacher at the same time because I have nothing but insane amounts of admiration for that guy. He is a phenomenal teacher and an amazing capoeirista. Uh, but because of me living as far away as I do from the academia, the academy in, in Toronto, um, uh, he, he told me, you know, you just do what's best for you because I, I would be more than happy for you to stay in Grupo Asha Capoeira because I know you love the group. And I know that's why you originally wanted to, to join was because of this group specifically. But I would also be more than happy to continue having you as my student uh, mm -hmm. if, if you want to, to go with, with me instead. But the decision is yours. And I think you should choose what will be the best for you in this scenario that you find yourself in. And I ultimately decided that because his group is still new, it's only in Toronto and in Mississauga. Mm -hmm. So basically... 
I would be confined to that. Whereas if I stay in Grupo Asia Capoeira, I can go to a variety of academies here in Europe and train with people there uh, right. whenever I have the opportunity. And so I decided to, to do that. Uh, but we're still great friends. And, and like he said, hey, it doesn't matter what uniform a person is wearing. Uh, uh, a friend is a friend for life. And that's how it stays. You know, a, a good friend is a good friend. And that's regardless of whatever group you're in, whatever you do, you know, so that's, that's not going to change. I really uh, loved how many good people I met in Bujenkan. And it sounds like it's the same in Capoeira. Um, oh, absolutely. Uh, the community there, I've had friends who did Capoeira, um, uh, as, as you know, for at the Axe, all of them at Axe. And now I know why mm-hmm. they all went to the same place because it's <laughs> world famous and some of the best guys. Now it may, everything's coming together now. Um, but you'd get special names given to them and they're part of it like a family. And it's so musical and exu- the dance, the dance fighting is, is, is dancing and it's fighting. It's both. And, and I can, I can see how that would, that would pull someone in. I mean, I, it was never an option for me because of uh, joint pains and uh, diseases I have since birth on my, I just, you know, I just can't do that stuff. It, it, even in just, right. in just, you have to be very careful. Um, right. Uh, that's why I do so much fencing. It's because that doesn't strain me. It trains right. me in bad habits for ninjutsu. <laughs> like when I'm actually leveling up, when I was going through the cues in ninjutsu, my teacher at one point had to say, you got to stop fencing at least for the next year. Otherwise, because you, they could see the habits. And, uh, and so I you know, have occasionally had to take years off fencing at various times so that I could d- develop in the ninjutsu. Um, mm-hmm. It's sometimes very hard when you're trying to do two different things. You're training different reactions to the same ex- response, and in right. fighting, that can be dangerous. Um, so, yeah, amazing people I always met, which I didn't find in Taekwondo. In Taekwondo, I found a lot of angry people who wanted to hurt people. Like, you know, sparring was a chance for a bigger guy to show littler guys how hard they could hit you in the fucking head with their feet. Right. And, and I encountered that for years until I was like, I'm done. I'm done. And I just took two years off martial, or three, four, three or four years off martial arts, off Taekwondo, just did fencing. And then I was old enough to do ninjutsu and found my place in the universe, um, as sporadic as it's been. Um, and it's similar, it throws back to Freemasonry, you know, like there's these pockets of people that really do strive to be good people, you mm-hmm. know. And I think that's, the, you know, the theme of this talk in a lot of ways, you know, how we can redeem ourselves um, whether it's as witches or as Freemasons or as martial artists, as just as human beings, how we can redeem ourselves um, and live fuller, more abundant lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's a very good way to, to, to pinpoint what this, this talk today is. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, Nietzsche would title it On Friendship. <laughs> which go. would be good because his actual chapter on friendship friendship says some pretty messed up shit like <laughs> women are not yet capable of friendships women <laughs> are or the best in like oh ugh. but you know it's in it's zarathustra whatever there's a question came in while we were talking um right. from from brother blaine down in missouri uh, and he's a, a mason and a templar and he says and is Lenny himself a Templar and belong to any Templar orders outside the York Rite? Ah, 
Uh, well, first, I, I should probably clarify that uh, I, I know, in um, at least in, in the U.S., it may be the same in Canada, I'm not quite sure, but uh, things are, are... Don't ask me. <laughs> I don't uh, know. Things, <laughs> things are usually very, very specifically divided into, you know, you have craft Freemasonry, which is, like I said, Freemasonry with capital letters, right? And then after that, after the third degree, after you become a Master Mason, then you have Scottish Rite and you have York Rite. In Scotland, that's not the case. There's no such thing as York Rite. We don't call it that. Uh, but York Rite, as far as I've understood it, even in the States, even though people usually give it that definition, York Rite and Scottish Rite. Uh, Scottish Rite is one specific thing, aye, but the York Rite is kind of an umbrella term for separate bodies in that. For example, you know, um, Royal Arch, Cryptic Masonry, and, and uh, Knights Templar, right? Uh, and that's how it is in Scotland. We don't call anything York Rite because these are separate bodies. So we have that after you become a Master Mason, like I said, and then after you get your Mark degree, whether you get that uh, in in the Blues, because here in Scotland, you can get your Mark degree in the Blues. In, in some countries, you only get your Mark degree in the Royal Arch. It's the first thing you get because that's how you then progress in the Royal Arch. Here, you can either get your Mark degree in the blues after you become a master mason or you can get it in the royal arch but in either case you need the mark degree before you can advance in the royal arch um and then after the royal arch you then have like i said cryptic uh, masonry uh, and then you have the knights templar uh and then there are some specific requirements for that uh, royal arch for example you need to have been a master mason for at least a year usually um before you will be invited to join the royal arch and then uh you need to have been in the Royal Arch for at least a year before you will be invited to join the Knights Templar. And then there's an additional requirement. Even though Freemasonry is not a Christian thing, it's not required that uh, you are Christian or Muslim or Jewish or anything like that, as long as you believe in a higher being or in a supreme being, as we say here in Scotland, we say you have to believe in a supreme being. But however you define that, that's entirely up to you. But uh, you need Maybe to it's your cat. Supreme being, right? Right. Uh, but to join the Knights Templar, you have to be a Trinitarian Christian. That's a requirement. Yeah. Um, it is so, in the SRIA as well, isn't it? In the SRIA and the SRIS, that's the Scottish version, uh, the Societas Rosicruciana in Scotia. Um, the, there, it's also required that you're a Trinitarian Christian. Yeah. Um, but uh, Royal Arch, no, it's just uh, as long as you've been a Master Mason for at least a year, uh, at least as far as I remember, I, yeah, I have to have been a Master Mason for at least a year. Uh, and then, like I said, at least a year in the Royal Arch before you, you can join the Knights Templar and then that other uh, that other requirement. But uh, so, yeah, that, that was a, a long answer to a simple question. No, I, I'm not I'm, yet. I, I am not yet a Templar. I have... Uh, I've been invited to join the Royal Arch. Uh, but then, of course, because of COVID and everything, that unfortunately hasn't happened yet. It was supposed to happen already. Uh, I already got my my um, my companion regalia and everything, um, even though I was told I, I needn't bother with that because they said, no, no, if you're interested, uh, you'll be installed as an office bearer in the chapter. And then uh, you don't need to waste money on your regalia. But I kind of like to have my own regalia, even if I get to wear it once and I'll never ever wear it again, well then at least I can put it in the frame and hang it in the living room 
or something. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I've been invited to join the Royal Arch. So I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. Uh, and then uh, eventually one day, I would like to join the Knights Templar as well. Well, it sounds like you'll be able to follow through with all that soon, thanks to the the uh, the, the brilliant and gracious, kind and insightful governance of Boris Johnson. <laughs> well, if everything keeps going in the right direction, which it seems <laughs> right now, uh, hopefully uh, I'll be able to to join the Royal Arch uh, next month. Congratulations. In February, then in March. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Very much forward to it. That sounds like a cause to break out those uh, tumblers, Masonic tumblers you have. (laughs) My Masonic tumblers. Uh, The tumblers of glass, right? Right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. My Grand Lodge whiskey glasses. I watched, uh, we watched uh, New Hope last night and I treated myself to a little birthday, birthday Lefroig. So, uh, that's why I've been chugging so much coffee this whole interview. Plus, you know, <laughs> we started damn early for, for me, but right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, this was, uh, this was less strenuous than uh, 45 minutes time crunch carving hazel with a tiny knife. Um, you know, cause my, your arm, my arm feels, Oh boy, you feel it. And you only got the 45 minutes in the winter, right. For the planetary hour. Um, for, right, right. Uh, you know, I had 40, 45 minutes. So it's just like, dude, couldn't stop. Couldn't stop trying to get there. I'm trying to get it. I want maybe I, I, I might want mine as thin as Ashton Chassan's, but maybe a little thicker. I don't know. It's, it's how you use it, right? Okay. I'm, I'm not going to touch that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, magic without fears. Thanks for coming on. Um, uh, there's one, le- one more clarifying question from a listener. In sure. general, if someone is super interested and might want to uh, get into dabbling in a esoteric occult book publishing. What's the way? There's always the Amazon option, they say, but it feels like too many strings attached there. Uh, more like smaller run, particular selections, right. just because. What, do you have any advice to someone who might want to get into doing occult book publishing? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, the first thing I would say, uh, and I know some people will say, well, duh. And other people will be like uh, offended. Oh, wow. So you think you're better than me or something like that. It's difficult to please everyone. But in all honesty, if someone would like to get into uh, occult or esoteric publishing, mainly because they love the topic, they love the subject matter. But if Mm -hmm. they don't have uh, an educational background in editing, at least I'm not saying you have to uh, go back to college or something and then start uh, studying graphic media. Uh, that that would be the way to go, but you don't have to. But then at least buy some excellent books on editing, on copy editing, typesetting, that type of stuff. Uh, buy some books on on publishing as well to educate yourself as much as you possibly can. Because there are a lot of people out there nowadays that because self publishing is so easy nowadays. Um, a lot of people seem to think that well, you know, any idiot can can publish uh, his or her own book. I that's very true, but it doesn't mean everyone should because there are unfortunately a lot of self-published works out there that look absolutely terrible and i'm i know this sounds really snobby saying that but as a publisher i take a tremendous amount of pride in my profession and and people don't realize how much blood sweat and tears goes into a really 
learning the craft of publishing and really knowing your stuff and, and having had to go through media graphics education and then having to do additional studies on your own after that and learning so much stuff through trial and error, ending up with your first publication. You think that looks fantastic. And then a couple of years later, you're looking at, oh, my God, what the hell was I thinking? I should have done this. I should have done that. I should have done that better. And I should have done this differently, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so for people to have that attitude that any idiot can self-publish, uh, it kind of, I personally feel it's, uh, it's inconsiderate and borderline disrespectful to people who dedicate their professional lives to publishing and have worked really hard to get good at what they do. Uh, and that's why I always tell people, hey, the more the merrier, because the, the more better stuff we get out there, right? But do yourselves and everybody else a favor to educate yourself first. If you already have knowledge of editing and knowledge of book design and so on, by all means, then get straight to it. And then my suggestion would be, like I said, get a couple of good books on self-publishing first, because they're usually really dumbed down because it's self-publishing. And if you find out, yeah, this is really what I want to do, then you can get some books that are more on the publishing business and will teach you, you know, like the, the financial side of things, all the boring administrative stuff that you need to know, right? And then just start small scale. Don't do anything massive at first unless you want to. Don't, don't uh, get a big fat loan from a bank and then invest like uh, half a million pounds or something in, in, in your publishing company. You know, go small scale. If you want to invest a chunk of money, by all means, but you can do small scale at first. If you do POD, for example, print on demand, it's an uh, it's an easier way to get started without uh, without getting trapped in anything, having spent like thousands of pounds or thousands of dollars, and then sitting there and and, and you don't really know what to do next, or things just don't turn out the way you wanted them to, uh, and then don't give up. Because publishing is not an easy business, especially occult or esoteric publishing, because it's such a niche market. It can be very difficult to, to live off of, basically, unless you go big scale. And don't compare yourself to the big timers like Samuel Weiser and Llewellyn Publications, because they have been around for yeah. decades. Yeah. And they they have the ability, both financially and administratively speaking, to pump out uh, uh, two, three, four new titles a month, whereas small-time publishers will put out maybe two titles a year, some only one, right? I mean, that's the same as how it goes for me because I do so much of this work myself. It means I, I have full control of what I do, but it also means that a lot more responsibility falls on me. And if something is not good and customers don't like it, well, it's all on me. I can't blame anybody else. It's my fault. Uh, and it also means so much more work for me. And so it'll take that much longer to finish something. But don't be afraid to start off small and just, you know, get a feel for things first. And then if everything goes well and you decide, I want to do more of this, then you can decide if you want to to spend more money, invest a bit, uh, like make a bit of an investment and, and maybe uh, publish a couple of books and then print off maybe 500 or 1,000 copies of each and stockpile those and then send them out. But yeah. POD is a good way to go. A lot of the so-called self-publishing companies like Lulu, for example, does not just have to be a self-publishing company. You can use it as just a printer and binder. So you can publish your own books, but just have them printed and bound through Lulu. 
that doesn't yeah. mean you're self-publishing it necessarily in that sense. You can still establish a proper publishing company, but right. use a quote-unquote self-publishing business like Lulu or CreateSpace. And if you I wanted would, to, sorry, go ahead. I, know, you I would just what? want to say I I want to, with all due respect to Amazon, I love Amazon to death. I've been an Amazon customer for so many years. <laughs> I didn't buy any. I'd never bought anything off Amazon till COVID. Seriously? Oh my God! Most of my I, books. No, no. I, I really. I, I liked my pre-COVID relationship with Amazon, <laughs> whereby my only interaction with them was them sending me royalties every month. I like that. I like the idea that there was a corporation out there that only sent me money. I, Man, I really liked that. I have bought most <laughs> of my books through Amazon. I, I have Amazon Prime membership, so we watch Prime Video, you know, constantly. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and I, I buy and rent movies through Prime Video, et cetera, et cetera. I've bought a bunch of video games through Amazon. No, oh, Amazon is my best friend in the world. Uh, but, <laughs> but Hey, if you respect, buy enough products, maybe you'll get to go on the penis rocket <laughs> as a reward. <laughs> No, let, let's 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 not. <laughs> <laughs> no, but with, with all due respect to Amazon, though, I would recommend if people want to use a self-publishing company at first to to print and bind their works, I would say go with Lulu over CreateSpace because mm. I tried uh, just in my experimental phase where I wanted to take a look at these different companies. Uh, CreateSpace, their quality was not as good as Lulu's. Uh, don't get me wrong, Lulu has its issues sometimes. I think that's mostly a staff issue that sometimes they'll have some people working there that, again, with all due respect to them, but in all fairness and the truth must stand, right? Um, yeah. They do have some staff members that sometimes seem like they, they don't always know what they're doing because they will make some obvious glaring mistakes where you're like, dude, come on. Uh, uh, not even someone fresh out of college in, in, in printing would ever make this mistake. Mm. Come on, that, that should not be happening. Yeah. That happens sometimes, but fortunately, they have fantastic customer service. And so they will very, very quickly... Uh, they will very quickly remedy a situation. You know, if you contact them, say, this is not good enough. Look at what I got. And you attach some pictures. They will quickly send you a brand new copy at no cost. And they will uh, ship it express just oh. to make up for, for their blunder. Right. So well, I know it sounds good. like I'm, I'm, I'm working for Lulu and I'm trying to, you know, no, you sell just, their business right now. But, but you just no, work they, with them. They, they do. They yeah. do good work, though. Uh, and then you have. Um, uh uh, oh, come on. Well, what's it called? It's right on the tip of my tongue. Well, there's the big companies. Yeah, <clears throat> I know what you're thinking. About. Um, um, what's it called? Yeah. They're in Canada as well. That's uh, uh, the one that's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's right on the tip of my tongue. Everyone it, listening right now is saying the name. So, so you Probably. Know, come on. In the comments. <laughs> Don't post in the yeah. comments. Someone will do that. Um, and if you want to find an edition, you can just look for a reputable local bookbinder, right? And get a quote from them. Right, right. Granted, I would really like to recommend if people are UK-based, or at least if they don't mind books being produced in the UK, they don't need to be produced in the States or in Canada. Obviously, that can sometimes be uh, the better choice financially speaking. But otherwise, oh, I highly recommend William Anderson and Sons in Glasgow because they are phenomenal at what they do. I mean, as you, you, as you, you have book. you shown, you yeah. Book, right? I mean, they I was curious before you first showed it to me. I was, you know, uh, we're we're fans of the art forms, so we're always a little skeptical. And I was like, wow, oh, that, right. yeah, that's 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 as nice as it seems they come. You saw the? Oh, did yeah. you check out the link I sent you to Paul Tronson's work? 
yes, over in Victoria, BC. Yeah, yeah. No, he's 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 on a. I don't want to say on another level, but he's let's call him. He's a unique, literally unique individual. Like he's right. the guy who he just rebound the Gutenberg Bible, like the Gutenberg mm-hmm. Bible and the Queen's Bible, and he charges yeah, he's like fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand dollars for a book. A lot of people right. see his website and they're like, hey, I've got this copy of uh, of this of you know this old text can you bind it for me it's like you know it's, it's sentimental value and he'll be like i think i'm the wrong person for that job <laughs> and he'll be like why right, like, my base rate is like 20 i don't know you can check it but paul tronson's uh period does some of the most amazing work and he's one of the most significant yet unknown occultists of of in the world like you know mm-hmm. he's he's he has editions he has manuscripts of the of Man, uh, Abermellon and Keo Solomon that still haven't seen the light of day. I remember. Crazy, crazy. The, the, we we are only scratching the surface, people. The, <laughs> the, the realm of the occult is still <laughs> largely unearthed. I mean, if someone wants to start doing like uh, translate, uh, put, put out n- new books, uh, wants an easy place to start, we still don't have all of Abraham Abulafia's works translated and published. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a simple no brainer. Like everyone who doesn't want to read out Balafia, you know, I, I'm still stuck practicing techniques from, from, from R.A. Kaplan's meditations on the, on the Kabbalah. Right. And, uh, fortunately I do read Hebrew. And so I do dip into the source texts. Um, I'm not so fast as I was in seminary, but, but I still can get it. And, but, uh, you know, Abalafia translated would be a fabulous thing to be done well by someone out mm-hmm. there. I'm saying it because I'd love to, buy them someone please go make them and do it right do it well oh yeah absolutely no that's why like i said before the more the merrier is i know some people will think oh no but but why would uh, a publisher give out like a trade secrets you know to other potential publishers or people who are thinking about getting into it but no it's not because it's not so much of a competition because there's enough work to go around yeah Uh, and and as a, a a book geek myself as an honest book nerd i just love to see great works coming out whether i put them out myself or someone else does i mean that was why i got into publishing originally because there were certain books that i just really wanted to see out there and they just weren't and so i decided well, i'll do it myself i have a, an education in in graphic media i know my stuff then I'll just do it. And that's actually how it started, just for selfish reasons, not not work-wise, but just in terms of a book I really wanted to see available in English. Hmm. And so I decided to do it myself. I contacted the right people, signed a contract for the rights, and then put it out there just so I could have that book on my bookcase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> this is this is this is the way. Um, yeah. Man, the great episode of, of the book of Boba Fett last night, it was the best ever. And it's the funny thing is he, Boba Fett wasn't even in it. It was basically an episode of the Mandalorian <laughs> and the All best right. one yet. I don't know. I'm just talking. Um, <laughs> sorry. I've got star Wars on the brain. Cause I just, uh, been watching it through it this week for my, during my birthday week and just enjoying, we've gone from episode one. Now we're at new hope doing all of them sequentially. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, I just, you know, I just want a lightsaber, man. I just want a fucking lightsaber. <laughs> Is that so much to ask? Come on, Elon, make us lightsabers. Nothing will go wrong with that. How, you know? <laughs> no, no, of course not. Of course not. Every child should have one. 
there's that meme going around from from a new hope of luke skywalker and it shows that luke skywalker gets lightsaber immediately points it at his face oh you've you've, you've paused i don't even know if you heard me well we are at the end anyway uh, will you unpause maybe not no, no. It looks like uh, I'm getting a message and we've lost Lenny. All right. Well, thank you for being on Magic Without Fears. His computer crashed. This was the end anyway. This was the way. Thank you all for listening. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, do more with Lenny in the future. Oh, he says, hang on. I'll get right back. Okay. Well, you know, either way, we'll maybe make whatever we say next as a, as a bonus for my exclusive subscribers. You can Please support the podcast at hermeticpodcast.com or magicwithoutfears.com. I have two because, you know, Facebook banned one of the URLs for some reason. I don't know. And, uh, yeah, it's been a, been a treat, been a slice to have uh, Lenny here. I'll just mes- message him and say, okay, if he wants to come back. Yeah. In the meantime, uh, I'm perfectly capable of talking on my own. Though I don't know what else to say right now. Maybe I'll just say, um, got some exciting guests coming up. Uh, Dr. Sasha Chato, the pri- the the foremost, the only, the foremost scholar of Josephine Peladin uh, in the English-speaking world. Um, she actually started her studies with uh, at the University of Exeter where I was uh, doing my doctorate through with Nicholas Goodrich Clark then she finished her PhD at University of Essex and she'll be on a second week of February so if anyone has questions about Josephin Paladin uh, he wrote the book uh, from how to be a mage that's very popular out there right now um, so if you want to read how to be a mage we're going to talk about that with uh, Dr. Chato and uh as well as many other things and uh yeah i think that's it thanks for listening love to everyone stay safe continue and we're back why 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 stop doing a good thing right um yeah so sorry about my computer something it's all right i have no idea what happened i mean i mean we did we did good i mean let's face it even if we went to fourth hour we've we have literally no other common points of interests or anything we could cover at this point we've talked about literally all of our common interests (laughs) completely so there's nothing else we could talk about so tell us where to find you what's your website well, um, that's a, a wee bit problematic. We know it's uh, down. We know it's down. <clears throat> what will yeah, it be? Unfortunately, so people can get this book. I, um, the the website. All these is books. W- right. The website is www.hermeticscienceenterprises. No hyphens, no dashes, no nothing. Hermeticscienceenterprises.com. Uh, but because uh, we're changing web hosts and because the old website, I had to give that up and, and wanted to, to do something else and do something uh, to improve the, the shopping functions on the website, I decided to go with a different host and, and all that. And now I can't move my old domain. Well, no, I can, but apparently I have to wait 45 days or something like that. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Well, so so that's, that's why it's, it's down right now. Uh, but it uh, it should be up soon, um, well soon ish. <laughs> but 
Uh, in the meantime, though, uh, I'm going to set it up with uh, another domain so that it, it will run off of both. It's just the, the .com one is the one I've, I've used since day one. And so I really wanted to keep that one. And it's the one that uh, gets put in the back of the books and so on. Uh, but otherwise, people will also be able to find it uh, under a, a different domain, which I will happily give uh, <laughs> once it's properly up and running. Yeah, and I'll let people know. I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, <clears throat> pretty on top of my social media. Sadly, <laughs> I wish I wasn't. Right. I wish I was like you know. I would do more, folks, but I just have so many things to do out there in the world right now. But. <laughs> No. Um, so we'll let people know. Thanks for listening, everybody. But we're going to do a little uh, exclusive subscriber segment. Since I am going to start phasing my podcast, it's now it's moving into its third year in March. And uh, I'm going to actually nice. probably leave uh, the platform I'm on because they've, they've taken away some of my red circle has taken away some of my, per, the tools that I used and made them uh, that I have to pay for those tools. It's like, I don't really, uh, I lose trust in a business that, after I've invested in it, takes away tools, wants to charge me for tools that originally were free. I, I lose right. trust in that. I don't respect that. Um, and uh, so I may move away. It looks like I'm going to move away from, from the, uh, and even stop putting ads in my podcast, which I do, um, just, to, just to cover the cost of, of Zoom and uh, graphic design, basically, just those two those two bills, and that's all it really does cover is like forty five bucks a month, fifty bucks a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to move away from that, and I'm going to move to a more subscription based model with more bonus content, just because it seems like that's what people actually want. Um, and so, you know, hey, well, I don't care. I don't care how how I'll do it. However, people want me to do it. Um, right. <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 how the cookie crumbles. All right. So let's well, let's do uh, moving into uh, thanks for being here. Now into some exclusive content. Let's talk a little bit about grimoire magic or something like that. Um, maybe uh, maybe I can even entice you to uh, share a have a dram. It's, it's earlier for it, you have no excuse because it's earlier for me. And I was thinking I might have a wee dram while we do this exclusive talk. You're you're welcome to join me. You don't have to join me. Well, uh, I I could, but uh, I would have to leave for a couple of minutes because it's in the living room. That's fine. While you do that, I will read us a poem from by W.B. Yeats. All right, then I will be right back. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon. And uh, 
seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies, uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies, uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. 
That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information 
to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature, as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. 
Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk